Hi, everybody, and welcome to Completely Beatles. Uh, from the Sneaky Dragon podcast, I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick, also from the Sneaky Dragon podcast. Now, if this is your uh, first time listening to our show, here's the rundown, how it goes. Uh, David is a hardcore Beatles fan and has been for most of his life. I am more of a casual listener. And uh, together we've been going over each uh, album track by track. Yes. Uh, and uh, and discussing and uh, revealing uh, trivia, Ex- facts. Exploring and the nooks and crannies of Absolutely. the Absolutely. Every nook explored, every cranny <laughs> nooked. Every, I'm not yes. sure how it I'm not how sure what to do with crannies. Now, yeah. uh, on today's show, uh, we're going uh, to be talking about... Well, sorry, folks, we've only got half an album for you this time, <laughs> because uh, we're talking the White Album, and that one... That's an album. I would say it's an album and a half, but it's basically it's two albums. It's well, it is literally two albums. It is literally two albums. <laughs> I don't. There's no need to be figurative when you can be literal. That's the old rule, right? Uh, so we're going to be talking about the first album in yeah. uh, the in the White Album. Yes. But before we get to that, mm-hmm. uh, we also discussed the singles that are around uh, that time and today. That is uh, Lady Madonna. Yeah. And uh, with the is it now is it a B side the Inner Light or are yeah. they doing the double A's was, as they have for the last couple it of was, singles? It was it was a B side. Okay, so. No more yeah. of this double A. Well, not. F- oh, does more of that come no, up later more on? Of that, yeah. Okay, yeah. stick around for more podcasts. <laughs> All right. Now, before we get started, uh, we usually uh, like to lay out the table with uh, what we call uh, some context. Yeah. Of like the era we're in now with the Beatles, and for that, I am going over today. Well, actually, today we're going to jump right into the singles. Okay, I, I was think- completely wrong. <laughs> Listen, maybe it's because I've listened to all the other. <laughs> podcast and that's the way we've always done it but we're breaking much like this album we're breaking some traditions yes here all right fair enough yeah. we're going right into the singles i think we can kind of incorporate some of okay. the uh, context into the into lady madonna so sure, sure let me just say for today we're going there actually were two singles released before the white album came out okay uh lady madonna and the inner light and then hey jude and revolution but we're going to do hey jude and revolution before the next you know the second half of the white album we'll we'll kind of do one single this time and one single next time plus the album mm-hmm. just because it's so much material that we let's let's just kind of spread it out sure thing so, so uh yeah lady so we'll start with lady madonna mm-hmm. which i think you'll agree is a it's a pretty it's a pretty different song from what we just left you know so we left so with, when did we last leave them well we had uh well magical mystery tour that's right the kind of height of psychedelia the mm-hmm. beatles psychedelic pomp and then we had uh hello goodbye with backed with i am the walrus so two both hello, a sides no that was well i'm in the walrus was a b side oh was it oh yeah. okay and uh hello goodbye is kind of a it's sort of more like a pop song where obviously i'm the walrus is kind of like the craziest maddest kind of psychedelic moment in the beatles history i think and so the beatles kind of when they um well lady madonna came out in march and actually what happened was the beatles were going to rishikesh to the to the maharishi's ashram to study transcendental meditation they're going to go there for three months so what they decided to do was to uh kind of record ahead of time so they had stuff to release while they were gone and so they went into studio to do three songs they had three songs that they wanted to work on and actually they had such a little creative spurt, they actually ended up doing four songs. So um, they went So they went in to do Lady Madonna. They knew they wanted to do Lady Madonna. They had the inner light, uh, and they had, and John had Across the Universe. And then while they were there, they 
uh, they went back into the, the studio to film a promo for, for Lady Madonna because the idea was they will show the Beatles recording Lady Madonna. Mm-hmm. But they were so inspired, they actually recorded their film, The Beatles, recording Hey Bulldog, which became, then became earmarked to go on the Yellow Submarine soundtrack. Oh, okay. So we'll leave that song and Across the Universe uh, because they were both released a little later. Um, well, actually, Across the Universe, what happened to Across the Universe was John was, wasn't sure where he wanted to go with it. He had a lot of second thoughts. And it ended up going on to a uh, World Wildlife Federation album that was put together by Spike Milligan, who uh, was the writer and comedian, one of the comedians in The Goon Show. And, of course, he was a friend with the Beatles, and so they gave him the song to put on the album. And then it has a kind of history after that as well. But we'll get into that when the time comes, because these, these things will, will be in our future. And so, um, yeah, they went into the studio to do... To do um, uh, or you going to say Spike? I was going to say something just about Spike Milligan. That, oh, but sure. that, but that, but that actually ties in with something later, better oh, than now. Okay. So I'm going to okay. do what you call pulling a Dave, and I'm going to go. I'm saving this bit for a little later on. Okay, good. I like it. So, <laughs> um, so what's interesting about Lady Madonna to me is it, it's, and I don't think it's that. Um, I mean, maybe the Beatles were a little stung by Magical Mystery Tour's reception. Right. You know, I think they feelings were kind of hurt a little bit, but it didn't take them very long to kind of go. Right, jump back on the horse. Did people you know, think at that time while they're on the way out that was uh, that was it for them? Well, I think I mean it probably felt more serious at that moment than it would have felt a year later. Do you know what I mean? Like when the you know this was the first time the Beatles did something that people didn't like. Oh, okay. You know, Hard Day's Night a big hit, Help a big hit, every album up to that point, universal successes. Now with Magical Mystery Tour, that wasn't a commercial failure though, was it? It wasn't a commercial failure. I mean, the album itself was a big hit. Right. It's a number so they one. have another, yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, if your failure as the Beatles is to have a number one album that <laughs> sure. wasn't quite as number one mm-hmm. as the other number ones, yeah. that's, you know, that's a real bell curve when it comes to failure. But it did spell a, it did spell kind of a break for the Beatles in the sense that for the first time they created something that parents didn't like as well. Up to that point, they had a, there was a real, you know, and it was partly through Brian Epstein, this real kind of a bridge between generations with the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, dad could tap his, his feet to a Beatles song the same way the teeny boppers in the house could, you know, be screeching along to it in their bedrooms, you know. Like there wasn't, there wasn't a feeling about the Beatles that there was, say, about the Rolling Stones, where people were just horrified by who the Rolling Stones were. Oh my God. Okay. They were peeing on the side of a gas station. Who are these, what are these animals, you know? And so. People who had to urinate. The Beatles didn't have that kind of scandal. I mean, mm-hmm. and they were in the sort of a protective uh, bubble as well. You know, they had, they had their MBEs, you know, so they were, they were, uh, I'm not sure what, the members of the British Empire. Yeah. And so, um, you know, they had this kind of protective bubble. They weren't uh, going to be, uh, you know, their houses weren't going to get searched for drugs the way that other pop stars <laughs> well, were and things let, like that. Let me just interrupt you there and ask, like, you, you've spoken in the past about how Elvis kind of lost his edge when he went to the army. Mm-hmm. Now, did the Beatles lose their edge when they uh, got their MBEs? Because that seems as establishment as you can get. It does, but strangely, no. Strangely, no. And I think because the Beatles always had a kind of, uh, they always had an edge to them. Even when they were at their most family friendly, mm-hmm. there was that element, that sarcastic, sardonic element to the Beatles that kind of undercut, you know, what was happening. You know, so, you know, you get your MBEs, then you do a song called Taxman that makes fun of the people who gave you your MBEs. Okay. You know, so there's that element where, you know, it kind of went back and forth. So, and like I say, they could have their Michelles and they could have their, their drive my car, you know, so you could have, they always had that kind of 
back and forth. Right. This kind of cross-generational thing. And even though Magical Mystery Tour, in a huge way, is a very universal album, the, the show itself, I mean, when you think about the, the cast, it's young and old. It's, mm-hmm. you know, little girls, little Nicola. There's, you know, the, the, the um, fan club secretaries on the, on the bus. There's uh, Aunt Jessie. There's the Ivor Blood Buster. Yeah, it's a real cross-section of England, yeah, absolutely, is on yeah. the bus with them, which makes sense, you sure. know, symbolically. They're taking England on a trip That's with them. That's right. Then, yeah. And the idea that all these people are going to go on the bus and come along on this trip, and then they didn't. Yeah. They you weren't ex- they weren't exclusive the Beatles yeah they 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 really did spread it mm-hmm. and you know we'll get to it again on on this album there's a wide variety of songs but what, for everyone on this album but what's stinging about Magical Mystery Tour is that everyone was invited on this trip and not everyone wanted to go you know mm-hmm. so you had a, this generation the older generation who said nope no more I'm not going on this particular Magical Mystery Tour right. I'm not, isn't, I'm not isn't going it amazing though that there was a time where everyone would be on board with the same band like yeah. that seems ridiculous today that like there'd be one band now that everyone would be yes that's yeah. the one you know if it's an all ages band it'd feel creepy if you're an older guy going to that and yeah. uh, the you know the more mature band well the, the kids don't want to go to that because it's uh, it's old folk music but uh, back then you actually could have that kind of mainstream appeal you could you could but I mean the time was a lot different then too I mean when you listen to the radio then you didn't have the kind of you didn't it wasn't broken up the way it is now into various genres and things there wasn't a there wasn't a virgin mm-hmm. fm there wasn't a jr country i'm naming local stations but you know there wasn't a country station there was if you listen to music you know you listen to frank sinatra and after frank sinatra came dion warwick and after dion warwick came the beatles and after right. you know and then there was a motown song and then there might be of you know uh matt monroe the singing bus conductor <laughs> singing you know a kind of a uh a kind of cod Frank Sinatra kind of thing. You know what I mean? It was a broad spectrum of stuff that was played, you know, and it might be like, yeah, it would be an instrumental, you know, like, uh, you know what I mean? Like some kind of, uh, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head now, but, you know, this sort of a, a evocative, you know, kind of, a, um, you know, tiki lounge sort of a sure. instrumental would, would be all, you know, and it all kind of go together. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't this kind of broken up, Yet, I mean, it came. Yeah, the mainstream you know, was much more mainstream. The mainstream was much, and but much broader too. Yes. So everyone was kind of lumped in, and so it was really agony to to young teenagers, you know, who wanted to hear the Beatles or wanted to hear the Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. having to sit through Matt Monroe and Frank Sinatra <laughs> and Kate Smith and whatever else you know was p- played to appease the parents who controlled the radio then too. I mean, there wasn't, you know, nowadays the idea that a dad, you know, has you know absolute control of the radio or the television, you know. You know, when I was growing up, when my dad wanted to watch TV, that was it. My dad yeah, watched television. Same here. You you either left the room he or watched the it. set. He yeah, gets, right. uh, gets to pick it. And he had his chair. Oh. If you're sitting in his chair, you had to get Best out of chair the, the chair. House. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Broken in by dad. And so, you know, and I know, you know, there's been a kind of a generational shift in the sense nowadays. I don't think, you know, speaking for myself as a parent, I don't have a chair. When I come into the living room, I sit where no one else is sitting. You sit where the dog isn't. I sit where the dog isn't. That's right. Uh, he's the only one I can safely kick out of the chair. Oh, actually. is that right? Yeah, that's the only okay. one. But even he growls at me. Fair enough. What can no respect? Well, what this can I say? this seems like uh, it would make having an album more valuable to you as a as a youth because you can't just like uh, turn on the radio station and sure. listen to all the type of music you like. Yeah. The only way you can do that is with your own uh, collection. But at the same time, there was so much new and interesting things happening that you wanted to hear it in the mm-hmm. now. You didn't want to have to save up and and save your 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 birthday money to go and buy that album. You know, so um, it's interesting. Like so, I just kind of just kind of brought it up because. You know, it's pretty much like Beatles back on their horse, you know, and so, and then Paul with the, 
almost right away with his second A side in a row with Lady right. Madonna. He he wrote Lady Madonna. Can I just ask you one quick sure, question? Sure. First, we were talking like previously how uh, by this point George was thinking of like happiness. Now, did having the common enemy of or not even enemy, but the common uh, problem of like oh we just got a bit of rejection. Did that help unify them? You know, because now they're actually up against something. and Because I can see how when it's praise, 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 yeah. the only person that can put the negative thought in your head is yourself. Yeah. And so you go, ah, enough of this. But yeah, if they're going against you, maybe maybe you all unify again as a, as a group. Well, I think if they were, I mean, I think if they were tr- truly behind the eight ball, that would happen. But I mean, like you, like you say, I mean, it wasn't a failure in the sense of a commercial failure. It mm. was a success. So, you know, and I mean... I mean, the Beatles were reaching the point now where it was really hard to be a Beatle, and it was really hard to want to keep pushing yourself to to be a better, better, bigger, you know, better band than anyone else mm-hmm. when you already was were there and you have a lot of money. And why? Why? Yeah, yeah. You know, like that's a lot of work. I don't, you know. Yeah. So what's the reward be, when you've when you've had the reward right. already? Yeah, it isn't money. It isn't fame. It You're isn't as fame. famous as it's going to get. Mm-hmm. What do you What are you doing this for? That's right. It felt like you know. Again, in the album we're going to be talking about, it's uh, it's then you know going being as creative as you can be and really being, pursuing all the you know artistic angles. Sure, and it had it had a, it had a cost doing that as well. I mean, because not everyone wants to go with you on that. Yeah. On Absolutely. That trip. Not everyone wants There's to, something for everyone yeah. to not like on the White Album. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Listeners and band members. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it had it had its problems. So at but this at this time the Beatles were still working relatively well together. You know, they, they enjoyed their time in the studio. And even when they're doing the White Album, it wasn't always fights. You know, it, often they got together and worked closely as a unified group. The problem was is when you know the other the members got bored of the song that the the one member had written. Yeah. Then it became a torturous, you know, long, you know, just fraught, tempers fraying kind of a session because because there was one person who was driving everyone else to to record the song to his standards, and his standards were much higher than everyone else's for that particular Absolutely, song. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah, it did become a a problem over time. The, the interesting thing about Lady Madonna is actually it's it's a throwback. You know, it's like the Beatles. Uh, were kind of, I won't say they anticipated it because this is one case where the Beatles maybe picked up what was happening in the States and kind of, and kind of brought it to England, you know, because, um, in December 11th, the Beach Boys released Wild Honey, which after the kind of w- really weird, surreal psychedelia of, uh, Smiley Smile was a, was this kind of a very stripped down group album. It wasn't a studio music, wasn't studio musicians brought in by Brian Wilson playing uh, very complicated arrangements. It was the band in the studio playing their own instruments, singing their singing very stripped down songs, and kind of it was kind of taking away all that kind of psychedelia, all that good vibrations, and all that kind of huge productions were gone, and they just went right back down to a you know band of six people playing together in a studio, you know. And then the same with Bob Dylan after you know the madness of the double album of Blonde on Blonde with these surreal psychedelic. Uh, you know lyrics that make no sense. You know, with you know, um, like you know, stuck outside of Memphis with the mo- where is it? Stuck outside of Mobile with the Memphis Blues again, and songs of that, which just these long seven-minute songs, visions of Joanna, seven minutes long. Sided ladies, Lady of the Lowlands, a eleven and eleven and a half minute long song. Even the band didn't know how long it was. You know, it was a surprise to them. It was eleven and a half minutes. So he comes out with John Wesley Harding, which came out December twenty seventh. In 1967. So when the Beatles were releasing Magical Mystery Tour, this grand statement of psychedelia, these two albums come out, these two little albums come yeah. out and kind of say, time to bring it back. You know, we've gone this far. 
no farther. So, you know, his album is, you know, much shorter songs, two and a half minutes, stripped down band, just him and a few Nashville musicians playing together. Okay. And uh, I think the only color on the albums is a little bit of pedal steel in the two final songs. You know, so it's it's a different... And, you know, so is this this kind of different thing that was happening in the States where you had like the birds and people like that were starting to explore roots music. And I guess the Beatles with the, their remarkable antennae that they were able to pick up these Beatles kind of trends. Beatles do have antenna. Beatles do have antenna. Yeah. And they're able to, <laughs> to pick up that this was happening. And so, and so, yeah, so Paul started writing this song, Lady Madonna, which is based on a, a piano line, a boogie woogie piano line from this uh, song from the 50s called Bad Penny Blues by Humph- Humphrey Littleton. Is that the is that the first piano that we hear in the piece, or is it? Later? Yeah, it's yeah. That's that. That's, that, a, that's that, an amazing start. That yeah. riff, yeah, yeah is, it's a great riff. Is basically from that song. Yeah, it's fantastic. And what's interesting is the original song was produced by George Martin. Oh, okay. So it's kind of it's kind of funny, but yeah, it was a it was a bit of a hit in England, of course, not in America. And so, um, yeah, and you know, then they they really were in this kind of creative spirit. So they it happened very quickly. It was two two sessions uh, to get the song down and. Uh, they recorded Paul's piano with an old microphone to get an authentic old sound, you know, this kind of overloaded old time piano sound to it. And then uh, Ringo just played brushes rather than sticks, so he played a much softer kind of a drum sound to it. And then um, John and George played their guitars, uh, both like these kind of fuzz, fuzzed up guitars through the same amp, just to create this really kind of tight sound to the to the song. And uh, what uh, even even like what I thought was interesting when I was reading about it was kind of return to the old is Paul does his own double tracking. He does manual double tracking rather okay. than having it ADT rather than using the automatic double tracking, which they'd used so extensively since revolver. And that basically turned into an effect rather than just as a, as a convenience, you know? And so, and what, the other interesting thing about it is that even though, you know, they're working very hard and stuff like that, there's still the lingering effects. I mean, they're still, you know, they're still, they're still dosing themselves with LSD. They're still having those kind of, you know, so, and then the other thing is George Martin started to withdraw, you know, so they started to want to take control. And so George naturally pulled back. And he didn't like drop the ball and say, it's all yours, you know, but he kind of stood back and said, okay, you guys want more control. That's fine. I'm going to be back here if you need me. So he mm-hmm. kind of moved from producer arranger. He still arranged, but he became more of a facilitator, you know, so he was there if the Beatles needed something done, he was there to help them. But otherwise, he had other artists that he produced. I mean, he no longer... He no longer worked for a Parlophone. So the success or, or, or whatever a Parlophone was of no interest to George Martin any, any longer. You know, he had his own company, Associated Independent Recorders. And so he was basically a hired gun working for the Beatles for EMI. And whatever, you know, so he really could care less in that sense. I mean, he obviously wanted to make good music. He was a professional. But he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the studio head anymore. So it was a different kind of relationship mm-hmm. that he had with the band. Um, but part of that, part of the cost of that was that the Beatles were running their own sessions. And so you had things like an instance where with um, Lady Madonna, they brought in uh, horn, horn players to play the horns. And Paul had absolutely nothing ready for them. Oh. And so these guys are called in. They come in in the evening. There was actually this guy named Laurie Gold. And he, he was a fixer. And that his job was you'd call him up and say, I need... You know, I need two tenor saxophones and I need two baritone saxes. We need them for an evening session at seven o'clock at Abbey Road Studios or at EMI Studios. You know, have them there. And so then he would phone around and find people. So, he, you know, in the story of Lady Madonna, he phones the guy. The guy's in the bathtub, you know, having a bath. And he's like, what are you doing? Well, I'm having a bath. Get out of the bath. Get down to Abbey Road. You know, the, there's a session with the Beatles. First of all, don't answer phones in the bath. 
It was dangerous, <laughs> it was dangerous, especially back then. I'm sure he got out. Okay. His wife probably called him out. Right. And so, um, and then, uh, and then he's like, do you know anyone who, I need another tenor sax. Do you know anyone I can use? And he said, well, Ronnie Scott's probably free. Now, if anyone knows anything about British jazz, then they know that Ronnie Scott was this like quite a major jazz like jazz musician. Okay. He had his own club. I thought you were going to say he's always free. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. He was he, he was a very busy jazz yes. musician, and he sure. he had his own club. You know, there's lots of recordings of of jazz musicians playing at Ronnie Scott's club, and so he came in to play. And of course, the Beatles didn't know who he was really because they weren't jazz fans. So. So they're like, this is Johnny, this is Ronnie Scott. He's a really big guy, but all these, you know, he comes in this prestigious jazz musician, and nothing's ready for him, you know. And so Paul's sitting in his piano and he's pl- playing the notes. He goes, "Well, you guys can play this." They're looking at the, the guys are looking at each other like, "Okay, but who plays what?" Like, "Okay, you're giving us notes, but what do each of us play in this?" So then they were given ma- uh, manuscript paper and pencils, <laughs> and then they had to write their own notations down oh, wow. of Paul's stuff. And as as the the one the baritone sax player said. He said, if we'd had music, we could have had it done in 10 minutes. As it was, it took a, a whole evening into night for them to do this. And you can kind of hear Ronnie Scott's exasper- exasperation in his tenor solo. It's a very, it's a blasted out tenor solo. And I kind of feel like it's almost, and then I was kind of wondering, was Paul mind doing a mind game there? Was it like he wanted a really forceful, exasperated solo, so he created the situation to get exactly what I, oh. I don't know. Oh, no, that's interesting. I don't want to. I don't want to put motives into pe- people's minds that aren't. The other interesting thing about the song is that there's a scat singing. You know, the well, that's John and George doing that, and while they were doing it, they were eating chips, <laughs> Marmite flavored chips, and so when they did the remix, they had to cut out all the crunching sounds from in between their their <laughs> scat singing. Yeah, really professional, but kind of funny. Now, did this uh, did this single go to number one? It was number one in England. It went to number four in the states. Okay. The states, they just I think they weren't re- not that they weren't ready, but they it wasn't what they were expecting from the Beatles. Well, you never know what you're going to expect from the Beatles lately. Yeah. Like you really don't. Like I yeah. think if you're a Beatles fan at that point, it's like we got the new single. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Here you you have well, no idea what's coming down the pike. Yeah, but I think there would be a super excite a super excited feel. You know that there's a new Beatles single and they'd be announcing it all day long probably. Like absolutely. We have the new Beatles song coming up. We're going to play it at three o'clock today. Yep. Tune in at three o'clock for the new Beatles single. Everyone does, and they and go, everyone, "Oh, good, good. It's one of those that we like. All yeah, right, it's good. Everything's those, fine. It's a good one. And the other interesting thing about this and Wade album is how different like Paul sounds without all the very speeding that was going on during Revolver okay. and Sgt. Pepper and Natural Mystery Tour where he almost always has his voice higher in the songs it's almost always sped up and so this song his voice sounds so much deeper and more 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 old, almost older yeah sounding. it almost sounds like he's gone through puberty yeah. the time that it went from there to there yeah, yeah. well yeah. you want a more mature sound that's what you <laughs> that's what you do yeah I was like uh I always find this like kind of a sister song to uh, Mother's Little Helper in that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, oh man, it, being a mom's rough. Yeah. It's being rough. But in Mother's Little Helper, of course, she turns to drugs. And in yeah. this one, well, you know, you know the day that's missing, right? In the song? What day is missing? Well, they list every day. Yeah. You know, it's like, this happens Monday, this happens Tuesday. Yeah. The, the day that's missing, Saturday. Because okay. mom, mom likes to go out and party on a Saturday, <laughs> and they 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 asked him about that later on, like yeah. why is that? And the initial response uh, was uh, we forgot yeah. to put it in. Sure, but then uh, they said, oh, because we always thought like it was uh, oh she has a good time on Saturday. It's like yeah, that'll work too. Sure, <laughs> let's get let's cut her a break and like that's a British uh, that's a British housewife. Even even she goes out for uh, for a drink on Saturday night. Nothing like nothing happens on Saturday in the song. I love I love the after you know where you kind of go oh yeah. 
And just that's because, what I meant. And just because it doesn't mean it's not true. Doesn't no. mean it's not true. Could be an unconscious thing that you've done. That's Absolutely. True that's true enough. It also has one of the creepiest, uh, literally the creepiest lyrics in a Beatles song, which is, what is it, Sunday morning? Let me see if I'm getting it Creeps right. Creeps in like a nun? Yeah. Isn't that uh, uh, disturbing? The idea of a, a nun creeping in. Just a nun creeping on the floor. That's just... I, see, I don't see it as creeping on the floor. I oh, see it as see more it? just kind of quietly kind of scuttling into, into the room. Oh, like is that how yeah. you creep? To me, when I think creep, I'm yeah. thinking like creeping, but... Maybe that's another way of creeping. It's yeah. just a creepy nun just sounds, <laughs> literally does sound creepy. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I also uh, very much like this song. And uh, yeah, the opening piano riff is uh, just outstanding. Yeah, it's yeah. it's great. And it's funny because Heated Bulldog also has, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about later, also has a, yeah. a piano riff. So it must have been kind of going through the through the air at that, that time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Inner Light, we're flipping yeah, it so over. The, the B-side is um, well another fantastic song from... I think well, this is actually the last kind of Indian-flavored song from George. Well, we if, won't get it, another one. It feels like, like this. this could have been on Magical Mystery Tour, mm-hmm. and you would not have, yeah. uh, you know, blinked an eye. You know, it feels it feels like uh, it almost feels like a little bit of a leftover from from that. Not that that's a bad thing. I would I would agree with you, except that I feel like this is George George's rebirth into into like like this is when he finally kind of comes out of his his um kind of post touring slump okay. and really kind of starts coming because to me uh within you without you and blue jay ray are both kind of droney songs that don't really have that almost feel like kind of time fillers you know that he just kind of put in the time and i got a song on the album but was you know he had three songs in revolver and one song on on uh on sergeant pepper and what and oh of course one song on on uh one song, yeah, one song. On if even if you think of the album of uh, Magical Mystery Tour with the collected singles and stuff like that, mm-hmm. one song on that. That's all he got, you know. So I just feel like he did do other songs, but they just weren't up to snuff that was felt by him and the other Beatles. And so, uh, namely, it's only a northern song, and it's all too much. Were some other songs that were recorded around Sgt. Pepper Magical Mystery Tour's okay. time, but they just weren't considered that great, and so they were put. They were. They were. Uh, uh, kind of shuff, shuffled off for the the Yellow Submarine soundtrack, and so this one, I mean, it, to me, it sounds like he's re- it's a really great song. Mm-hmm. It's, it's my favorite George Indian song by far. Oh, okay, all right, but not your favorite George song. No, probably not my favorite George song, but I really like it a lot. Like I would yeah. be up there with with his songs. I think it's a really great song. And so what happened with with this song was he was actually asked by a, a friend, a guy named Joe uh, Joe Masso. To or maybe Massot, I don't know it's a, if he's British or if he if went with a French pronunciation. If he's listening, please call. Yeah, in. please call and let us know. And so he asked George to provide the soundtrack for this kind of swinging London film he's doing called Wonderwall, that starred Jane Birkin and uh, Jack McGowan. And Jane Birkin, if people don't know who Jane Birkin was, she kind of hooked up late, a couple years later with uh, Serge Gainsbourg, and did the. The song uh, "Je t'aime mon ampleur." Do you know that song? It's, yeah, I don't it's know. basically like kind of a. It's kind of basically the sort of sultry song with a man and a woman uh, feigning uh, sex. Oh, that sounds very familiar. Yeah, okay, yeah. all right. And then an even better song by them is "Soit Neuf Anne Erotique." Do not know that one. Fantastic song. It's just a fantastic, fantastic name. Song. Yeah, you, it's a fantastic just, song. you had me at the name. Yeah, and then Jack McGowan. Have you ever seen Fearless Vampire Killers? Yep, he's the old man who accompanies Roman Polanski's oh, character. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, he's the other Fearless, fearless Vampire Killer. So there was a film with them uh, in it, and uh, so so um, George was doing the soundtrack. And so what, you know, he's still kind of in his Indian phase, and so he went to Bombay and he booked some time there and booked musicians. Um, once again, probably hired a fixer there who went, you know, hired all these people he needed for the stuff, and he went there. 
and to work on the soundtrack. And he, and so he, I think it was booked from January 9th to the 13th. And basically by the 12th, he'd got all the soundtrack work done. He just had everything done that he needed to do. And he still had one more day. So I thought, well, rather than waste studio time and the, I'm paying for these musicians anyway. So he just kind of got them together and just had them do uh, some, he just produced some ragas with the thought that maybe they could be used for later Beatles material. And so the the only one that was used was the raga that was became the inner light. The rest of them were just kind of disappeared or whatever. But that one, uh, yeah. So it was brought back to Abbey Road and then it was there were some overdubs done to it and his vocals and stuff were added. And so actually for his vocal session, what's interesting is Ringo was missing that night because he was a guest on Scylla Black's show, Scylla. And what's interesting, if you look at this, the the recording schedule is between eight and nine when Scylla's show was on, there was a break. And so obviously the Beatles Aww. must have planned it so they could watch Ringo in the show oh, and Scylla nice. as well because they're friends of hers. She was from Liverpool as well. And he would have had no way of taping it back then. Yeah, yeah. And so the lyrics were actually taken from a... Uh, this Taoist uh, holy book called the Tao Te Ching, which uh, George had been recommended uh, by this uh, teacher at uh, Cambridge, who recommended the book to him, and so he found this. They found the 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 lyrics were kind of taken from the book, and sort mm-hmm. of the same way that uh, John took stuff from the Book, book of, the, of dead, the Dead, yeah, yeah. And, and turned them into Tomorrow Never Knows. He did the same thing, and apparently he was very reluctant to sing it. He had to be coaxed by the other Beatles and. Paul was telling me, this is a really good song. You just really got to oh, sing it. Oh, he doesn't have the confidence in it? Well, because it, 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 oh, oh, it was a high oh, key. Oh, I see what you're saying. It was because, you know, he hadn't really been thinking about the key, I guess, when oh, it was recorded okay. in India. And so when he came back and it was time to sing it, he's like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> this is a really high. But I think it's fantastic. It uh, it falls, like, there's a lot of songs about loners in Beatles. And some are sad loners. And some are uh, wise loners. Mm-hmm. And, like, I think, like, The Fool on the Hill is the wise loners. Okay. Is the sun going down yeah. and the world spinning around. And this is one of those uh, wise loners okay song and it almost feels like the opposite to another song we'll get to on the white album yeah where it's like i don't have to leave i can just stay in here the world is here okay. and i don't need to leave my home i don't need to leave anywhere and there's a song later in the white album which is hey come on out you should come outside <laughs> outside's where it's at but right now no interesting the wise introverted sure so the beatles have done that mm-hmm. they got their singles done put aside ready to go right time to go to india so and uh so in February 1968, the Beatles and their wives and their entourage all trooped to Rishikesh, to uh, the Maharishi's ashram, to his meditation center. And um, they were going to be there for three months. Wow. That was the plan. And there were other celebrities there, too, as well. There was Donovan, uh, who did, like, Mellow Yellow and uh, the Hurdy Gritty Man and songs like that, Sunshine Superman. And there was Mike Love from the Beach Boys was there. Mm-hmm. And there was Mia Farrow and her sister Prudence right. were there. That name sounds familiar. That I wonder if we'll hear familiar. that later yeah, on. Yeah, you might just make up again. And so what happened with, well, Star, Ringo Star, he left after a month. Partly because he always had stomach problems from being, he spent a lot of time in the hospital as a child. Right. And so he always had a bit of a dicky stomach. And so he actually brought like this big supply of baked beans with him to eat while he was there because, so he brought all these tins of baked beans because mm-hmm. he didn't, uh, he just couldn't handle the Indian food. It was way too spicy for him. Right. And so he left after a month. He was gone. Probably because he was bored. And then, That's a long time to spend. And then Paul, yeah, especially meditating. Paul lasted until about mid-March. And then probably because he felt like he should be working. Why am I sitting around doing nothing? I'm just writing songs here. I, sh- I should be recording stuff. So he left. And then uh, um, Lennon and Harrison stuck it out till uh, till April. And then they left too. And kind of under uh, shadowy circumstances. It's never been fully explained. 
there's lots of different stories that, but basically, Ma, the Maharishi was kind, he was kind of paying a little too much attention, a little too much attention to some of the younger, more comely females that were. And that is the there. first time that's ever happened with a religious leader of any type. Probably the very first time, and probably the last time too. I think that's the very last time it ever happened. It's never occurred since like then, snowflake. Or since. Like a snowflake. Like a snowflake. It's completely unique. It's unique, and it's thing. all around you. Well, the Beatles already had a kind of a. A love-hate relationship with the Maharishi. I mean, they respected what he said. They found found it very interesting, but he was he was a very canny, shrewd businessman. Well, how they get turned on to him? Um, George went to see uh, went to see him speak in, at the London in London at the London Hilton. He was really impressed by it, and he brought the other Beatles to, to hear to hear mm-hmm. him. And then they went to Bangor in Wales, and that's when Brian Epstein died. That was the weekend Brian Epstein died. Okay, when they went to hear him speak there. So, so they're yeah, very they, vulnerable emotionally at yeah, that point. At yeah, that point. very open. But they were vulnerable. They're also they also had some problems. I mean, he was using their names to promote himself, and they mm. didn't want him to do that. They asked him not to do it several times. Yeah. And so, like I say, there was kind of a bit of a friction already. And then, uh, yeah. So, so then John, John and George left. But while staying there, they didn't use any LSD. Like mm. They went completely drug free, except for except for marijuana. They brought marijuana with them, and they smoked it kind of secretly. They do what they you know run away and smoke some marijuana the same way they wrote songs they weren't really supposed to be writing songs as much as they were but because you're sitting there for a long time it, and you're a songwriter it pops yeah, in your head and so head. yeah they yeah. Were, they're working and so you know they really cleared their heads and so especially john like john just had an outpouring of, of material uh and so when they came back um they got together near the end of may in 1968 and they got together at george's house kinfons his home in Esher. And they did, um, they recorded a bunch of demos, just of all this material that they'd come up with while they were away. And so, uh, Paul, Paul recorded seven songs, which were Blackbird, Obla Oblada, Mother Nature's Son, Rocky Raccoon, Back in the USSR, Honey Pie, and then a song called Junk, which the Beatles never did. Later it was on his first solo album, McCartney. Harrison had five songs. Well, my, these are all written in Rishikesh. Uh, Will, Will My Guitar Gently Weeps, Piggies, Circles, which, uh, was not done by the Beatles, but later appeared on um, his album Gontropo in 1982. And then uh, Sour Milk Sea, which is a fantastic song. I so wish that he had done that song as a Beatle. The demo's great. And th- there's a version by La- Jackie Lomax, who was an Apple sign- signee. And so uh, George ga- George produced and gave that song to Jackie Lomax as one of their first singles as Apple, when Apple did their first four singles. And uh, which the first four singles were um, Mary Hopkins, those were the days. Jackie Lomax's Sour Milksy, The Beatles' Hey Jude, and then this song called Thing Thingamabob <laughs> by the by the Van or the Dyke Mills Band that Paul McCartney produced. So this is weird kind of instrumental amongst wow, all these okay. kind of great songs. But yeah, that was the first four Apple songs. And so, but I would have loved to hear the Beatles do Sour Milksy because it is a great song. Like yeah, if, if yeah. Check out the demo. You can hear them. You can hear the demo on YouTube. We should, if you want. Uh, we should put it up on our uh, website. I should do that. Yeah. There we go. And so then also Not Guilty, which was actually recorded for White Album, but was left off of it. And he did a later uh, kind of slower version for his 1979 album, George Harrison. Okay. And then um, I guess that's, yeah, that's five songs. And then Lennon, though, had did 15 songs. So his songs were Revolution 1. Everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey. Remember, all these songs are kind of not, they're, just, they're demos. They're not, all the verses were there. Some were missing bits and, you know, they were much more built up in the studio, mm-hmm. a lot of them. Some of them were kept in, the, in a very acoustic way. Um, um, Cry Baby Cry, Sexy Sadie, Your Blues, Dear Prudence, I'm So Tired, uh, 
the con- continuing story of Bungalow Bill, Julia, What's the New Mary Jane, which was recorded for the White Album, but was left off. And that song is crazy. Yeah. Just crazy. <laughs> um, Child of Nature, which later became uh, Jealous Guy and was on Imagine okay. in 71. Happiness is a Warm Gun. And then some songs that were recorded by the Beatles, but not for White Album. Mean Mr. Mustard, Polythene Pam, and then Glass Onion, which was on White Album. Okay. So or the Beatles, as it actually should be called. So, um, yeah, so they just had this flood of material just because they were so, um, they were so do you think it was, free, you know, they're, they're, do you they think it time. also helped that uh, they were off acid at the time? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that really, particularly Lennon, because Lennon was super dosing himself. Mm-hmm. Like, if he didn't have, like, the constitution of an ox and the, the psychological strength of, of a, a stubborn, self-willed Liverpool lad, you know, that spent his whole life fighting against authority, his, his aunt, school, everywhere. He really, I think he really would have suffered damage with the amount of, of acid that he took. And I mean, he really did so risk he took losing more himself. Than the others. Oh, for sure. For yeah. Sure? Okay. He took a lot, and I think that he really um, was really lucky to to escape it. I mean, he still had problems. I mean, White Album period. You know, he started to to use heroin, and yeah. so that didn't affect him very as much with the White Album, but really was a real hindrance during the Let It Be Get Back sessions, and. Um, yeah, I just couldn't seem to escape that element. I mean, when they returned, you know, they just started to drift back into bad habits. They started to, to do drugs again, mm-hmm. started to take LSD, started to do all those things. You come back easy. from the fat farm, yeah. you're going to have some ice cream, yeah. The reason, and, and, although, uh, and although his wife, Cynthia, did go with John to Rishikesh, while he was there, he was getting all these postcards and things from Yoko. And basically, when he came back, it wasn't very much long after that he that he left, well, that she came home from a, from a trip to discover Yoko, there at the home with them sitting having breakfast together and greeted by John with an oh hi sin so that was how she knew that their marriage was over so yeah um and so that's another thing that's you know like when we talk about uh when we talk about the Beatles having trouble together in 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 the um in the studio, part of the trouble wasn't just that they were fighting with each other. It was also things started to change around them. So now Yoko was a constant companion of, of John's in the studio. And it would be okay if she was just like other guests who came to, to the sessions and just were there to hear what they're doing. And But no, that wasn't good enough. She also had her own thoughts that she wanted to say, which is perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. Is it? <laughs> but when you're in a kind of a... When you're in a when you're in a kind of a chemistry like that, yeah, and you add a new a new uh, chemical into that, when into that formula, one person adds a new chemical and the others have uh, not, uh, have not, yeah, yeah, okay. then uh, yeah, then it becomes odd. There's um, there's a uh, yeah, I described it in my notes as her constant sphinx-like presence because that's kind of what she was. She didn't speak all the time, so she just kind of sat there, this silent gnomic figure sitting in in the studio. And making the other ones kind of ill at ease because they're, you know, you want to be free. You want to, you want to be able to make mistakes you're and to kind of let it all hang out all, when you're yeah, recording. Yeah, you're a bunch of lads. You want to yeah. joke around. And now, uh. Now there's someone. Mm, yeah, okay. <laughs> and you're not sure. And then, yeah, there's like, there was a tape compiled, uh, the request of the Beatles called Beatle Chat. And they asked for some of the engineers to put together like all kind of, uh, before song chatter and in between songs and their tuning and false starts and stuff like that, kind of jokey little moments and stuff, put them all together onto the, into this tape called Beatle Chat. And there's a moment in it where um, Yoko suggests to the other Beatles that they could perform Sexy Sadie better. <laughs> Fortunately, John kind of it was in a mood to 
placate the other Beatles, and he says, "Well, I could do it better," you know. You know, so it kind of puts it on himself. Yeah. But you know, the stuff like that would really not sit yeah, well with nah, people. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Particularly when you're a Beatle. I mean, you can be as you can be as man of the people as you want, as Paul McCartney wants. You can be as thumbs aloft mm-hmm. as you want. But man, you are a Beatle. You are inside. Well, you know you're a Beatle, even, and all that arrogance that's part of that is inside you. Okay. You know? Well, and, let me let me just say this: like, even at the best of times, like, uh, say you're just running, you're a businessman, right? And you're uh, you're at your office, and now what happens? A guy brings along, and nothing against bringing your girlfriend to work, but your girlfriend's now at work. Oh, yeah. well, that's interesting. She's sitting there. Does she work here? No. Uh, she's just going to be here at the office this whole time. That's great. Well, listen, we're going to go to a meeting, and yeah. uh, oh, she's coming with us. Sure. Okay. So, has anyone got any notes on the proposal? Oh, you do. The person who is not been with this company but you have some we're doing it all wrong okay so how's this going over yeah exactly yeah so so yeah i mean i mean the beatles fought before that time they had their they had their moments in the studio where they lost their tempers or they had a point they wanted to make and the others disagreed or a song they yeah or an idea that thought was really good and the others didn't think was that great and she might be right in some of these cases it's quite possible but But she's now thrown the balance off yeah because now uh one has become two and now uh now we got a problem the the other thing that she did was she recorded an audio diary out loud in the control room so she'd be sitting talking about john lennon Mm -hmm. aloud in the in the control room and saying things like miss you john when he's downstairs recording in studio two she's sitting up above you know talking while the engineers and stuff are all trying to do their jobs that also kills me as a as an image just (laughs) makes me laugh i can see why uh there was a problem so on july 16th jeff emmerich who had been so instrumental with with their sound you know creating all these kind of interesting new effects and and part of you know ringo's drum sound and the leslie and all those kind of things he left. He just couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't take the, the losing their tempers and stuff like that. He was, tells a story of um, George Martin trying to suggest to Paul a way to help him sing Obli Oblida because you know, he's having all this trouble. And he's like, you know, just kind of hit it on this, you know. And Paul's like, well, if it's so easy, you come down here and do it. You know, that's kind of the the uh, cleaned up version of what he said. And Jeff finally just thought, you know, why? And Jeff didn't go down and then record a hit single and really showed them all. I'm telling well, you, that's not that what happened. That was Norman Smith. I'm oh, afraid. okay. Which, but um, the uh, the thing about it is that um, yeah, I just, it just, you know, it's just no fun anymore. Like what was fun before? And he's working other. He's got lots of other sessions to do. Mm-hmm. He's an in-demand engineer. He works with George Martin for as part of Air, and he also is a, an EMI employee. And so he's like, okay, this is enough for me. I've I've had enough. This is where it ends. So he left. And then a guy named Ken Scott took over, and Ken Scott was also became producer. He produced David Bowie and uh, Supertramp and uh, Devo, so he's kind of interesting. And then, um, and so, were you going to say something? No, oh, I was okay. just very interested. That's an okay. interesting, diverse uh, roster yes, of uh, people right. to have produced. And so then, yeah, like I said, and so George was also kind of withdrawing. You know, he had um, he had his own production company he was working all around london producing other sessions and stuff for people and so he brought in an assistant named chris thomas and thomas um just kind of became second producer even though in reality the beatles were producing themselves and george was there as kind of their guide their mentor their kind of overseer help them out in arrangements make suggestions when needed when necessary he was just sort of there and there was a in in there is talking about um chris thomas was away on vacation and he came back and he came to the, the white album or the Beatles sessions and uh there's this note from george saying hope you enjoyed your trip glad you're back i'm off on vacation you can take over <laughs> you know so he's kind of stepping in to this situation where 
the Beatles are producing themselves. They don't even know who I am. Like, they mm-hmm. don't care about me. So, yeah, it was very, very interesting. And he, once again, he also went on to have quite a, quite an interesting producing career. He, um, produced, um, like, uh, Roxy Music, Pink Floyd, The Pretenders, Sex Pistols. Wow, again. He co-produced the Sex Pistols. These are all album. very diverse, yeah. uh, yeah, careers they've, they've had afterwards. Yeah, if you look at the Sex Pistols, never mind the bullet, uh, bollocks, it says, um, it says, uh, produced by Chris Thomas or, and then it has another producer's name mm-hmm. because they both were co- producing songs at the same time. And because what Malcolm McLaren was trying to do was create a situation where he would pay neither of them. Right. And so he would have one guy working on the singles and the other guy working on the album. And then they were, were being switched back and forth and they were kind of trading songs back and forth as well. And then uh, they actually demanded money from him before yeah, they, because they realized that the trick that was happening. Yeah, yeah, that's a, but hey, good scam. <laughs> good scam. Yeah. And so, and this one last thing, because I know this is all this context and it's going on forever. Um, the Beatles at this time, you know, they, they were the Beatles. They were the greatest band in the world and everything they did was going to turn to gold, right? So it doesn't matter how, li- how little effort they might want to put into it or how much, how much effort that's, they were going to get the same result, mm-hmm. you know? And so they just felt like, Whatever they turn their hand to would eventually turn to gold. If they, you know, persisted along like intuitive, you know, let it all hang out, man. Let's not get too hung up on it vibes, you know. And then, and then uh, no matter what the cost, no matter how long it took, it was going to turn to gold. So that's the kind of thinking that went into the Apple, you know, the yeah. Apple, which, you know, business as artistic statement. And by come the way, disaster. If, you're, if you're all watching this as a movie <laughs> and you find out that's the part of the movie you're at, you're thinking things can only go great then. Mm-hmm. This is the part in the movie where things just uh, go even higher. Sure. Through past heaven to oh, super yeah. heaven. Yeah, right. Here we go. And uh, But then what happened, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we had Apple. And then, and then creatively, it also meant that they were embracing chance, mm-hmm. which is an interesting thing, I think. The problem is, though, is if you embrace chance as the only thing, you know, and you don't see hard work and, dil- you know, diligently working at something as also valuable, and then you start to see accidents as meaningful. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. Because when you start seeing accidents as meaningful, then meaning becomes an accident. Okay. Though if you've had success with your, like some of their greatest successes have sure. been their mistakes. What, what lessons should sure. you learn from that? But, well, but you, what you learn from that, yeah, that's a problem. You're taking but it to you, an extreme. You're taking it to an extreme and you're ignoring the fact that all the hard work that went into that Okay. chance being possible though there's another element that i think they're missing out of that which is their experience which is like you yeah. can see someone go and they play the trumpet and just go that didn't look like he was working really hard mm-hmm. but you don't see all the practice that led up to this sure. now up to this point these guys have been you know with the exception of three months in india yeah have been working like madmen yeah madmen for the last what five six seven years well not quite that long but i guess four years has it only been four years since? Okay, since the well, when they were six, in uh, Germany. Kind of were, s- well, okay, if you're going to include that, I okay, am. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm doing the sure. whole. Let's say, uh, let's say a decade then. All right, a decade. There we go. So you've got a decade's worth of experience yep. going into this as well. So even though you might not be seeing them working mm-hmm. like crazy now, they are bringing sure. the skill set. That's fine. But were they working crazy at being uh, directors of a company? I don't know. They weren't. Okay, then when I they know. were in Hamburg, now I do know. <laughs> when they were in Hamburg, they were not practicing being directors of a company. Right or running a, a big business, which is what Apple was. But they were applying the idea, ignoring the what you're talking about, the experience mm-hmm. and the hard work and all the hard graft that they brought to being the Beatles to becoming a success. They ignored all that and only looked at the chance, the you know, the chance opportunity, the fluke of the King Lear being on the radio or the the hen cluck arriving at this the right moment for the guitar part for Sgt. Pepper, Lone Club Close Band Reprise. You know, they're ignoring the that that element that aspect of all the hard work that's behind it mm-hmm. only seeing it as chance and as luck 
you know, it, and, you know, and just a little bit of, you know, oh, we can make it work. Well, if you're also, if they were going with an Indian philosophy, they'd also be probably be going with the idea that everything is connected. So it's not necessarily luck they're going with, mm. but it meant to be connected. Yeah. You know, if you just let things take care, I mean, a lot of these, you know, the songs are, if you just, hey, just let, mm-hmm. well, let it be. If you sure. just, if you just let things be, they will work out, yeah. you know, and, and just trust it. You know, then, so I can see how they would have that philosophy with the philosophy that they were pursuing. Sure. And not so much Paul, who still, I think, was still wanting to be the, the consensus builder of the Beatles. The other, the other Beatles were consciously rejecting straight society. You know, they were consciously... Well, they can't be in it, so why would they want to be part of it, though? Like, there's no way they could fit into it. Though. Well, but I mean, before they couldn't before either. But, right. But they still, you know, because of Brian's influence, they still... Built a con- they still built a consensus. They still had a, a sense of sharing, of being part of, you know, mainstream and oh, okay. of, of, of kind of counterculture. By this point, forget about it. You know, we, we won't talk about it this, this show, but Revolution 9 in no way is a, a bridge builder between, between straight culture and, and counterculture. You know, mm-hmm. it's just not, it, it can't be, you know, it, it's designed to be the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, <laughs> it's just reminding me, sorry, of the uh, the movie American Hustle, where they talk about something in there, which is how every perfume has something in it that smells bad, and it's you can't have something that smells good without something bitter in it as well. Okay, kind of is a little bit off putting. And yeah. I look at uh, look at songs like the ones you mentioned yeah. as like, oh, the off putting one actually makes the other ones rise a little bit. <laughs> if they were all consistently good, but you kind of like fall into a hmm groove. But if you get something that's jarring, yeah. it might it might put you off. And it almost it feels like in a lot of, especially with Magical Mystery Tour, just recently that there was a, a little zim at the end or a little twerk or a little, yeah. some things warp and things go wrong. And that just it wakes you up a little bit so that the rest of the uh, the rest of the song uh, works works better. Well, that's true in a way, but I mean, then it's, it's subjective as well, because mm-hmm. who, who, you know what I think are great songs and white album. You might disagree with me. Mm-hmm. You might like songs that I think are are the kind of not so good. songs. Yeah, I doubt there's anyone who likes every song on the white album. Perhaps someone listening to this is going, nope. Uh, the whole both albums bang on, but uh, yeah, this one really I think yeah divides and uh, <laughs> you know folks. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's go to it. Let's take it out of its sleeve. Do you know one of the reasons I like that they do? And I know it's not the White Album, but people do call it the yeah, White yeah. Album, and we announced it as the White Album. You're right; it's the Beatles. The Beatles, yeah. Um, but if you, if you, I think there's so many different uh, div- divergent songs in here, so many different colors. Yeah. And uh, what happens if you take uh, all the different colors and put them together? What do you get? White. That's what all all colors combined make white. So I've never found that in painting. Well, uh, that is. Uh, that's what it is. I, <laughs> okay. I can't. Uh, okay. I can't go. We agree to disagree because that's just what it okay. is. <laughs> that's physics, Dave. I can't. Okay. Uh, You're talking about light. I am. Co- I am talking about light. So that's what color is. Color is light. So we start off the, with a. We start off with a bang. My one problem with the way that we do these when we started. I remember I wanted to do it totally chronologically, song by song. Yes. Because the problem is... You wanted to confuse people as much as possible and have them scrambling through their <laughs> albums and playing like playing all the songs well, in different order. Because some people do actually listen to what we say and then they play the song. They listen to what we say, they play the song. And that would really make them uh, work for it. The problem, though, is we, we lose the historical place of the songs in the, for the Beatles. So like back in the USSR, you know, they started recording, say, in July. And back in the USSR, it was recorded, say, in September. Mm-hmm. Well, before... Just before they started recording back in the USSR, tensions had got really bad in the band and Ringo quit. He quit the band. He left. He said, I've had enough and I'm leaving. Much like the plot of A Hard Day's Night. 
That's right. And he went and he kicked tires down an embankment and ruined some little boys' games. <laughs> and uh, and had sad music playing while he did it. It's kind of it, sorry. It's 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 interesting. Just on a bigger picture, you've you do have a bit of a problem here with uh, with the format of the show in that there's the historian in you yes. that wants to go through the Beatles' history. Yeah. But it's it's conflicted with uh, uh, going through the album itself as yes. its own piece of work, and That's those right. are two very different things. That's right. The album really exists separate from the. If you don't know that Ringo quit, and you're not super familiar with his playing style, right? You're going to listen to Back in the USSR. And think nothing of it. So why this is why this messes you up a little bit is because yeah you're you're trying to throw the history mm-hmm. but you have to mix up your history. Yeah, exactly. You're basically Doctor Who in this. I am. You just keep time traveling I through keep it and timey wimey exactly. Okay. But but I appreciate the effort you're making on this. <laughs> well, Ringo quit. There's several reasons that he quit. One was he felt that he wasn't contributing to the Beatles anymore. That his drum playing wasn't that great because he'd been playing. He hadn't been playing as a band. He'd just been playing to, to tracks. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time you get to Sgt. Pepper, a lot of the tracks were just Paul playing guitar or Paul playing the piano and then, you know, and other instruments being dubbed on and then Ringo coming in and then putting his drums to that. Right. So he's not playing as a as a combo. He's, he's just playing by himself. Almost, yeah. yeah. So he's sitting out in the waiting room, reading magazines, learning to play chess, whatever, and waiting and waiting. And that was the other reason that it was he was it was just so boring. You know, he he was tired. He was just bored of seeing the endless hours that he waited around to play his parts. Mm. And only that, he was he was bored of the endless takes that he had to do of the same parts as well. You know, once he'd done his drum bit, once he'd figured it out, that's it. You know, and to have him come and play a hundred takes of a song, that's a hundred times he's playing the exact same drum part. You know, and so it was really, it was just no fun for him anymore. And so he just thought, you know what? I don't need this. I can do other things. Absolutely. And most I'm, famous drummer in the world right now. I'm going to I'm gonna leave. So he quit. And everyone was sworn to absolute like double secret, you know, double secret probation, secrecy. You cannot tell anyone <laughs> that he left. So no one found out about this at the time. There was not an any anywhere mentioned that Ringo had left. Like no one knew at all. He was gone for two weeks. And it was just kind of they had to slowly kind of coax him back. And so when they recorded back in the USSR, it's Paul on drums. And possibly others as well. No one really knows for sure. Oh, wow. The drum track was recorded at least three different times, or overdubbed three different times, and so different parts were added because to be kind to Paul, I mean, he's a pretty good drummer, but he wasn't a drummer, you know, so he's a pretty good drummer. He's no Ringo. And so to bring Ringoisms into the song or to get a drum track that is as good as something that Ringo would do, and by the way, it isn't as good as what Ringo could do. And that's, that, that's might part be, of the, that might be nice, too, is like uh, right. finding out that you were necessary and not just... It is part of the sad par- part of it, though, is that we don't get to hear what Ringo would have done with back in the USSR. It would mm. be interesting to hear his drum part for it. But so, yeah, I mean, the bass was overdubbed three different times. You know, so it was a real composite song because it was only the three of them working together. But they really threw themselves into it and produced a, this absolute... It's, you know, great song. And it's so odd to start off with. Well, maybe it's not odd, but like a comedy song, basically. It's a, it's, it's, all, it's all, it's a, par- yeah. not a, a parody song. It's almost like a satire yeah. of uh, that kind of, uh, that kind of music. And it's yeah. just such a weird idea. Like, you, I mean, weird. we're used to it. The thing is, you and I both grew up to this song, yeah. so it's always been there. Yeah. So we didn't have that. What is what back in the U.S. is like? If you yeah. turn again, you don't know what you're getting on any uh, Beatles albums. Yeah. You think I'm I'm going to get some sitar? I'm going to go down a weird road? And it's like, oh, we got a rockin' bit. All yeah. right, let's. Yeah. All right, I'm all for this. Here we go, yeah. little Americana, little back in the U. What? 
and then just hilarious. Yeah, it's, it, and you forget how hilarious the song yeah, is. Yeah, and it's her first kind of fifties rocker. Yeah, since since I don't know since maybe Drive My Car even before that probably. I mean, I wasn't uh, you know the biggest fan of the uh, you know the um, covers they did on some of their they're they're good, but you want them to be doing their own stuff. Yeah, and this yeah. is the nice mix is like sure. what would they have sounded like doing this type of song? Mm-hmm. They would have sounded like this, but. Yeah. We're gonna have a good time with it and uh, make fun of it. And at the it same does time. have it does have lots of influences. Obviously, Mike Love was this was written in um, Rishikesh, and Mike Love was there. So you get that Beach Boys yeah, element yeah, too, with the kind of Beach California Boys, girls yeah. kind of thing. And Ooh. Mike Love says, yeah. Mike Love says, well, I suggested that they, he list girls. You know that that would be an important <laughs> part of it. That you know, girls in the USSR. You know. Just like California girls, yeah. you know, and so uh, McCartney put that. In. But it actually started. It started based in a, a campaign, a trade campaign in Britain called "I'm Backing Britain." Okay. And so the original title for the song was called "I'm Backing the UK." That was what it was, <laughs> and somehow it became twisted just from joking around and, and to became to I'm to um, back in the USSR. I'm back, you know, I'm back. It became I'm back in the USSR, and then it became back in the USSR. And yeah, it was just it was, and it's a real takeoff. It's because it, there's a Chuck Berry song called "Back in the USA," "Back in the USA." Yeah, which the Beach Boys kind of ripped off the riff of to do uh, "Surfing USA," and so that so this song kind of takes that that sound that "Back in the USA" song, the "Surfing USA" song sound, and puts it into this new kind of. What I would love to see is sound. like, uh, and there's no really way of doing this unless you had a million rights in the world. Yeah. But like, uh, it would be nice to have a thing almost called the Mamas and the Papas of the Beatles, and just have the songs that are the parents of these songs that you yeah. present here. It's yeah. like when you're saying like with um, Lady Madonna, that piano riff. Yeah. Show that have that sure. song like sure. this led to this. You you have to know so. The, other, the, the kind of tragic Sounds like something you should do on Tumblr, those of you who are fans of this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. You could do actually do that you nowadays. Could. Yeah. yeah, you could. Um, We're not going to do it. So, yeah, you say the song is a joke. It's obviously meant as a joke. When they were recording it... Well, so- it's a funny song. Soviet tanks were rolling into Czechoslovakia, part of the clamp down there. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, crushing the Velvet Revolution. So, it's a joke, but at the same time, it came out of this sort of sensitive time as well. So, it's... It's a hard, you know. Well, so people's that's reaction. why I'm saying it's not parody; it's yeah. satire, and satire yeah. should uh, should take the piss a little bit. I guess that's so. What this does. Yeah, the John Birch Society in the United States charged the uh, Beatles with fomenting communism. Oh well, that's good. They that's it was pro-communism. And I don't then feel they wrote a song called "They Don't Get It." <laughs> <It's right. laughs> yeah, I don't feel it's that that pro-communist though. No, it's not at all. It's completely ironic. Do you? Don't, I don't think they believe any of this at all. Yeah. No, that's ridiculous. So I was a little off in my time. I actually did write down. I also it. don't think uh, Maxwell Silverhammer uh, promotes murder in future no, songs. No, I don't think it's supposed to be. A, no, I don't yeah. think it's pro-murder. Listen, <laughs> probably not. Oh boy, it is pro-pataphysical science, though. Um, yeah. So they started recording in May, and the song back in the USSR was in August. So that's why things were um, things were a little bit. Uh, what one of the funny things about it is because of the song's super fast tempo and the fact that Paul wasn't, you know, he's a, he was a good piano player, but he wasn't a great piano player. So the tempo was too fast for him to do the actual kind of what would have been like a, a do or a fifties kind of R and B style piano part, and so he keeps missing this what's called the passing chord. It's a kind of flatted chord that you're supposed to do to do that kind of authentic fifty sound. Mm-hmm. So he he omits it entirely, and so it kind of changes the way the song is, and it gives it this kind of beatly sound rather than being a true kind of fifties rocker kind of sound. Just use, what's the game? Yeah, accident love accidents love the Beatles. So maybe they were right. Maybe they were right the whole time, Dave. And let's all go to the uh, Abbey Road Effects Library for the album uh, Volume Seventeen, mm-hmm. Jet and Piston Engine Airplane, so we can get the sound of a Viscount Viscount airplane taking off and landing for, which was recorded at an airfield 
for the song. That's that's where the sounds came from. The, it's right. great that they had a library there that they could yeah. just go into. And what's fantastic is that... I just love that, that you list the sound effects. How that's how many, thorough this is. That how actually... many bands, though, were putting sound effects into their songs? Not very many. I can oh, I can think of the Birds Draft Morning has has a uh, kind of a, a war collage which was done by the Fireside Theater. Mm-hmm. But that's the only thing I but can think of. But as you said before, George Martin has his uh, background in uh, comedy albums the as Goon well. And, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely that influence is, is found in this. Mm-hmm. Like, I can see this... I mean, this kind of song doing doing you know a style of music, but then taking the dark or flipping it completely. I mean, uh, other people have of course done that. I wish I could think of some right now. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, this is a good example of that. You could definitely have this just on a comedy album. Like this this would fit on one of your Ktel's Goofy Greats. <laughs> yeah, if yeah. it wasn't the Beatles. If it wasn't so too expensive to license. Absolutely. For goofy yeah. 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 Um, all right. Well, let's move on to the next song, which is interesting because this song was actually recorded right after. Back in the USSR. Oh, so it's kind of curious. Very different. It's very different, but it's kind of curious that it. So this actually also doesn't have Ringo on it. This is Paul on, on oh, drums okay. again. Once again, I'd love to hear what Ringo could have done with it. Paul does an okay job. It's okay. He's a bit stiff. Uh, the final part, his drumming in the final part of it, which I think was overdubbed, is really great. But um, it's still, I would love to hear what Ringo did with these two songs. But now, uh, Prudence, we've mentioned a little bit earlier. That was Prudence Farrow. Prudence Farrow, yeah. yeah, she was one of the one of the the guests at the ashram. And um, apparently she was very keen, once again, two stories. She was either very, very keen on meditating and did not want to leave. I've also heard that she was taking a medication at the time that kind of created agoraphobia and made it actually physically hard for her to leave her, her residence. Mm-hmm. And so she, um, she, um, she had to be coaxed out by people to come outside. And, and so that's where the, you know, they didn't write the song and co- to coax her out. Right. But... Part, they incorporated that coaxing element of Dear Prudence oh, yeah, yeah. and stuff like that into the song. It's, a, it's an absolutely beautiful song. Now, it, and, yeah, it just, just a great Lennon song. It feels like, you know, again, it feels like the opposite of that song that we heard a little earlier, the In, in the Light, In the Light. Is the, that, the Inner Light? The Inner Light, yeah. Uh, where, uh, you know, it's like, uh, come on out, come on out. And it's yeah. like, no, you can just stay in and have the world. Now, if the philosophy that she was adhering to yeah. there, and she was agoraphobic, yeah. that's great philosophy. It's like, you never have to leave. You can just have, go with your inner light and go, do it all yeah. uh, all inside. That is the perfect philosophy for someone who is uh, agoraphobic. <laughs> I guess so. But your friends still want to see you. <laughs> Absolutely. You shouldn't take anything to the extreme. I'm just saying that uh, that probably does work work well for you. So, yeah. So, um, so yeah, this is actually this was actually not recorded at Abbey Road. Uh, the Beatles went to a studio uh, in London called Trident Studios because they had an 8-track mm-hmm. recorder there. And they had recorded, they recorded Hey Jude there. Because they didn't want to end up with the same problems they had recording the orchestra for for Sgt. Pepper, and they wanted they wanted a big orchestra for Hey Jude, so they went to a place where they wouldn't have to do a link up of two four tracks; they could just use one eight track recorder. So they went to try it, and so they also they liked it, so they went back when they were doing Dear Prudence, even though it's not a super complicated song. Um, they still they still liked it, um, and two things worth noting: one is that absolutely fantastic bass part from Paul McCartney. Okay, so great, and then. Um, and also from George, a kind of return to his Indian style of playing the guitar. And I just think it's, it's just really, really great. Um, this song, this song, uh, is again in their loner category. And this is yeah. the, this, this one, it doesn't quite remind me of Eleanor Rigby because that's just a kind of sad story. Yeah. But really it does remind me of Nowhere Man in that it's someone who there with no more, Nowhere Man, you know, uh, come out into the world, come out in the world. What are you doing just with your own yeah. little world here and in your inner world? Come, come out and join us because yeah. there's a whole world out here that you're missing. Sure. And they feel somewhat parallel, those two songs. 
Well, philosophically. Philosophically, I, I hear what you're saying. Do you know that Paul provided some flugelhorn on this song? I cannot pick it Do out. Do I? No, I don't know that. I <laughs> cannot pick it out. I did not. I've, I've read it. I don't okay. know if I believe it. It may have been mixed down into the mix so low that you can't hear it. All right, those of you out there, if you can spot the flugelhorn, spot the flugelhorn. Yes. Please, uh, please our, let us know. Our newest contest, <laughs> the Beatles. Our only contest spot we've ever flugelhorn. had is just. And you know what? That's the only contest we'll ever have. But it's all we need. And frankly, if you can spot the flugelhorn in any other songs, let us know that <laughs> as well. As well, it's pretty obvious. In uh, oh, that's a French horn, and, and you can't, can't always get what you want. Mm-hmm. At the end of the song, there was they were doing hand claps. They had a bunch of people in the studio doing hand claps for it. And they broke into applause at the end of the song. So they liked it so much. I think that's great. Next song is the very self-referential Glass Onion. This is a ve- yeah, a, a very very meta. Yeah, this one seems like it was. Uh, it, it feels like Beatles fan fiction. It okay. feels like just list all the different songs in the past and let's connect them all into one crazy universe. Yeah, it's a very very strange song. Yeah, it's John. I think John had a kind of a love hate relationship with critics and interpreters of Beatles songs, mm-hmm. and I think he kind of loved the idea that people looked at the songs and searched for the, for meaning in the songs. But at the same time, he just could not resist pulling pulling their noses and uh, doing a song like this, which is full of has you know misinformation in it and just kind now, of now uh, with the whole uh, you know uh, at this point was Paul? Did people think Paul was dead? What was the? No, what was no, the... Paul. It's, I think it was a bit later than this. Yeah, it might have been around the time of the White Album. Okay, I mean, this is a time when when people started making those kind of you know kind of drug connections, and there was a lot of things like you know if you peel the banana off the sleeve of the Velvet Underground album, it it's got acid on it, so if you lick it, you'll you can go you know just stuff like that, right? Like those kind of rumors were just rife, right? You know, all kinds of druggy kind of rumors and things like that were going around. But that rumor about Paul had not started yet. I think it started after the White Album came out. Okay, um, maybe even later that maybe even with um. And I mean, it started as a joke. Because I, I, I heard that by saying the walrus was Paul, yeah. that in some way was was supposed to say that, mm-hmm. oh, by the way, but that, those, that's the clue to you sure, guys. Sure. Now you know the truth. Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that he said that those words. No, in the <laughs> sense that that's what he meant. Yeah. You know, he was just dropping false trails, you know, for no particular reason. It's just a, it's just a silly song. You know, it's funny. I was reading a, an interview from him in uh, 1968. An interview in Rolling Stone with Jonathan Cott, and he's he talks about Glass Onion, and he's he's just and he's excited about it because he says Beatles fans will love it, <laughs> you know, and that's all that's all he says about it. He says he's excited about it because he says you know Beatles fans will love it, yeah, because he knew that they like to look for the song, you know, like look at the songs in that way, and that they would enjoy this song, which is full of you know false trails, you know, and weird little things, little sayings and stuff like that. It almost feels like what the uh, Marvel movies are today, where you'll see a sign in the background and someone will go, oh, that's, you know what that is? That's a, that's a this. And yeah. that thing they said, well, that connects to, and it, it means nothing for the most part. But yeah, it's fun to make up your own, uh, your own connections. And, and heck, I, I really like this song, by the way. Like, it's a great song. A song. Like, oh, it's yeah. really, it's fantastic. Oh, it's fun. It's yeah. one of my favorite songs on the album. Yeah, for sure. same here. Um, yeah, it references five other Beatles songs. So it has Strawberry Fields Forever, okay. I'm the Walrus, mm-hmm. Lady Madonna, okay. The Fool on the Hill, and Fixing a Hole. I'll get a, I'll get a look in. And I love when he mentions Fool on the Hill. There's that little recorder part that they added to, you know, to make you remember. Now, um, what does? And what's funny though? Okay, you, I was you just gonna say one more thing. Oh, please do say more things than you want to say. Okay. Wait, it, don't say more things than you want to say. Say as many things as you want. Because the interesting thing, the thing is, Lady Madonna, which is referenced in this song, huh. references I'm the Walrus, and then. Uh, what Lady Madonna references? I am the walrus. Yeah, in his lyrics. Yeah. Oh, where, where so? Uh, you'd have to look. I'd have to look at it again. Oh, very good. Well, and then, um, luckily, I can do that right away. You keep talking. <laughs> let me take a look. And then it also references I am the walrus, which references Lucy in the Sky. 
Okay. So. I'm looking at Lady Madonna right now and uh, Children yep. at Your Feet, Who Finds the Money, I Haven't Sent, Friday Night Suitcase, Creeping Like a Nun, Bootlace. I'm trying to see where Walrus is in here. Can I, can I look at Absolutely you can. Let's just pause. We're just gonna, I'll no, put, no, you don't have to pause. We can uh, we can, we can can uh, talk while this uh, goes on. So Dave's right now looking at this. I just want to know what uh, making a dovetail joint is. That's the that's the other thing in there that I have, that I thought maybe it might have been reference to uh, to something else. Yeah, where is it? I've just heard I've heard that it references I'm the Walrus, but where? Well, Dave, I'll I have think to go... we've got our second contest. <laughs> if you guys out there know where uh, the I'm the Walrus references, oh, and see how they run. Okay, see how they run. That's in from I'm the Walrus. Yeah. All right. There you go. Well, there's a lot of. Sorry about that, everyone. I just ruined the contest. It's really, it's really from Three Blind Mice, but okay. Yeah, fair but, enough. But no, but it's a reference to I'm the Walrus. Isn't All it? right. So, um, that was so, worth it, everybody, huh? Yeah, that was. That's fine. Nah, that's fine. I'm gonna cut out a lot of that. No, you are not. I know you. You're not cutting out a damn thing. Um. <laughs> so then, uh, then uh, yeah, well, you're right that the Walrus was Paul was interpreted as a clue in the Paul is dead myth that because he's before he says that he says here's another clue for you all. Yeah. The Walrus is Paul. That's why I was wondering. But, yeah. Yeah, but the actual rumor didn't exist at that time. So well, was the was it part. just a thing like who was the Walrus? Was yeah. That a, a thing? Yeah, that's what he was saying. Like who was the Walrus? Like, okay. And then he misses miss it. The Cast Iron Shore is a real place in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. So I think John just included that. And he says in the, like, I was going to say, he says in the interview that he always wanted to use that, that name in a song, mm-hmm. the Cast Iron Shore. And so he just threw it into this song. He says that in this interview with John, Jonathan Cott. It's a, it's a real place. It's between two little towns called Igberth and Garston. And what it is, is it's a place where, a place in the Mersey where all the, garbage and stuff from the f- sewers washes up oh okay so so the cast cast iron castaway stuff sure yeah and then it was no it's known to the locals as the kazi yeah nice so there you go and so after hearing the mono mixes uh lennon felt that the song was missing something he thought well this needs something a little bit more and so what he did was he, he was gonna he decided he was gonna add some sound effects to it which seemed to be a, a, a theme off to the library he went off to the library he went and so he compiled a four-track tape that featured a telephone ringing one note of an organ <laughs> on track two. Track three featured soccer commentator Kenneth Wollstenholm shouting, It's a goal! And then track four had the sound of a window being smashed. So, and actually, they were, these were never used. He went to all this trouble. He spent a whole evening session compiling all these things. And then when George Martin came back from vacation, listened to it, he said, well, Why don't we add some strings to it? And John said, There you go. That's what was missing. <laughs> yep. Sometimes you have to do the wrong thing to get to the right thing. And so, yeah, so it had four violins, two cellos, and two violas were added with another brilliant George Martin score. I love his score for I'm the Walrus mm-hmm. because it quotes parts of the song, like parts, quotes parts of the singing and stuff in his, in his, in his score. And same with Glass Onion, it, it quotes itself so much. It's part of the self-reference I get. And then I love that kind of creeping end to it, too, where it has that kind of descending violin part mm, while it's going... Dun, yeah. Dun, dun. Yeah, it's just really great. Yeah, really it takes great. you places. It's a really good song. Um, what's funny is Ian uh, MacDonald, who wrote the fantastic book Revolution in the Head, was not a fan of this song. Because he wasn't a fan of this element of the self-referential game-playing part oh, of the Beatles. Absolutely could see that, yeah. He didn't like it at all. And he kind of... He kind of points the fingers at the Beatles for the, their own problems. And he says, you know, it's part, you know, it's partly all the game playing and clues and stuff like that they would put into songs that caused so many problems for them because it attracted people who were not well. Yeah. To become very interested in this band that had all these clues and things that they could mine for, for, for interest. And he has this great quote where he says, and he, you know, brings up when the Manson family crossed the interdisciplinary interdisciplinary divide between textual analysis and mass murder 
you know, so taking, you know, it's one thing to interpret song. It's another thing to interpret songs as telling you it's time to create uh, a race war, you know. Yeah, though to be, okay, and I, I'm going to play the to, to be sure. fair card. Sure, just be fair. When you're, when you're, I'm just talking about Ian McDonald. This is him talking. No, no, you're okay. blaming them for race war. Right. I understand what you're saying. You're blaming the Beatles for race war. Yes. Dave clearly did that. You all heard him. And yeah. then the, sure. fine. he'll edit that out later, I'm sure. If you didn't hear him <laughs> say it, he did. Um, when you reach this mass of people. Yeah. Some are going to be unbalanced. Yes. No matter what. Mm-hmm. And some are going to take things wrong and sure. some are going to do horrible things probably in the, inspired by what you've done. So yeah. there's nothing, there's nothing you can do really about that. You know, I, I understand that there's a little teasy thing of like, you know, yeah. you start a treasure hunt. You can't uh, complain when people then dig up your backyard. Yeah. I understand that. Yeah. People are going to take it too far. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. Okay. I think it's just fun. I think they're having fun. Oh, no, I agree with you. And I so think it's it, fun it was too. more fun for people than it was for the couple of crazies <laughs> who just went, yeah. Unfortunately, some of the crazies were Charles Manson and and uh, I can't remember his name now because I always try, try not to say his name, but the fellow who shot John Lennon was yeah. another one who was obsessed with the Beatles and obsessed with finding meaning in their songs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the other, other interesting thing is that Ringo played a double drum kit for the one and only time in his career, but he found it too intimidating to play. So he actually <laughs> ended up just well, reverting a small, back. A small man. You're going to feel even smaller. He was just thinking, he was thinking like, you know what? I need a bigger, I need like a big I'm a rock star. I need a rock star drum kit. Yeah. Because he really played a very small drum kit. If you look at his drum kit, he just had he had a bass drum, he had his snare drum, he had one tom, and then he had a floor tom. That was it. He didn't even have two toms on top of his bass drum. <laughs> and then he had like this kind of small amount of cymbals. This is really funny how great he was, but how little he worked with yeah. in terms of, of terms That's of all you need. instrumentation. Yeah. You don't need to be Neil Pert or Terry Bosio where you have to climb into your drum kit yeah. to play it, you know. With, a genius artist can have yeah, like the base, most basic watercolor kit and they're fine. And the person who spends a thousand dollars does a piece of crap art. So, you know. What there you, you go. Try, what are you trying to say? I'm saying you're not a very good artist. <laughs> no, not at all. You're a very good artist. All right. Let's okay. move on to Obla. Now that my heart is broken, let's move on to Obladi <laughs> Oblada. Which uh, I probably have my earliest Beatles memories of this song in Yellow Submarine. Because it was released as a single in 1976. Okay, that's... And that's so it was on the radio a lot a when lot. we were just at that time yeah, period. Yeah, probably when I'm... Uh, on CKNW uh, every day when our mom or dad listened well, to I it. Well, I just remember being on uh, on vacation and uh, and listening to that. And then like the okay. Olympics were on as well. Like yeah. I remember all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. And uh, this is the, as far as I know, the only Beatles song uh, to ever be the theme song for a TV show. Which was? Life Goes On. Oh, was it used for that? Yeah, it was used for the TV show Life Goes On. I don't know the show. It was a, it was a show about a, a mentally uh, challenged uh, kid and sort of his, uh, it was a sitcom just kind of based around him. Odd. I think it had two seasons. Wow. Not bad. Not a bad show. Um, yeah, based, it was written in Rick, Rick, Ricky, Rick, Rick, oh, Cash. I was going to say Ricky. Written in Ricky Derringer. <laughs> Um, Ricky, don't lose that number. It was written in <laughs> Rishikesh, and um, it was an expression used by this, uh, I guess he was a Nigerian conga player named Jimmy Scott, who, like, McC- McCartney kind of knew him. And this guy would use this expression all the time. It just kind of meant, you know, life, you know, whatever, come see, come saw, or yeah. que sera, sera. And, uh, yeah, so but McCartney borrowed, liberated this expression <laughs> mm-hmm. from him. And actually, uh, Scott later uh, tried to... Uh, to not unreasonably, he asked for a percentage of the royalties right, for because, the use of his yeah, phrase. Yeah, fair enough. And Life goes on, bro. Come yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> and so then, uh, yeah, he laid it up the case when McCartney paid for paid legal costs for a different case that Scott was involved in. So All right, then. I guess it was kind of a life went on. What's ironic about this song, this bouncy, devil-may-care song, was it was a result of 44 hours of studio time. And McCartney's perfectionism led to it being remade not once. 
but twice. Well, you sent me uh, an earlier. Was it an earlier? Uh, that was the first one. Yeah, that was the version first version of this. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I liked it. Like oh, I liked it again, a lot too. It, uh, like all of these. Um, uh, different versions you've been sending me. Mm-hmm. It's tough to say which I prefer. Like yeah. I like the newer version that yeah. you that you sent me, which yeah. is actually the older version. Yeah. Um. But I don't know if I'd like it as much if I hadn't heard this one to well, death. You know. So it's tough. It's interesting. I don't even mean to death, but I've heard this one so much. Yeah. I'm almost numb to it. So the newer version is like, oh, well, that's uh, got a bit more life to it. Yeah. It's on Anthology Three and uh, on Disc Three, and um, it's it's um it's interesting because it's it's very different. It's very different. It's not completely different, but it's very different in tone. And feel than in the, the than in the correct version. Mm-hmm. It feels almost like it comes out of Abbey Road era Beatles, and it feels like it's kind of pointing the way towards sort of seventies rock. Like it feels like something that this, that Paul McCartney could have done with Wings. Mm-hmm. To me, that that version of the version of mm-hmm. Obliterate Blue Dog by the that's on the White Album does not feel that way. It doesn't feel like it could be done by anyone else but by the Beatles. But that version, it almost feels kind of almost has that kind of seventies Wings kind of feel to it. Very very different. I do like it too. I like it a lot, but I'm not sure which one I like more. But, Judge for um, yourself, everybody. Yeah, once again, you, should, you live in the again. land of YouTube. Go, you uh, go check that out. Go check it out. Um, yeah. So what happened was, well, he started it, and then they added all the, you know, John and George backing vocals, the high pitch backing vocals, and then they actually brought in session musicians. Three saxophone players came, and a bongo player, which I thought was weird because Ringo's there. Can he play bongos? But they brought in a bongo a session thing, player, yeah. and a piccolo was added as well. Uh, but McCartney erased it the same night it was recorded. He went back and erased it and just re- recorded more vocals over it. And then after doing all this work, and this was the very, very first time that this happened, he rejected the song. He decided that it was no good. And this is the first time that a song was ever rejected after people were, you know, outside musicians had come in and worked mm, on it. You know, okay. so they had session musicians come in. These guys got money and stuff like that. They, and then it was rejected by Paul. And so, so they were working, on, they were working away on this on this remake and just struggling through it. And everyone was getting frustrated and fed up with it. John did not like this song at all. He didn't even like it in the get-go. So by the time they played the 400th version of it, he was really sick of it. Well, apparently he came into the studio and he was kind of stoned and feeling kind of aggressive. And he just went over to the piano and started pounding out the song and saying, come on, this is it. This is how it should go. And that's the opening of the song. That dun, 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 <laughs> that's, that's what they, and that they came, that became the second version. And so they worked on that. And then, and then McCartney decided that he didn't like that version, and he started trying. He recorded two more versions of another remake, and then he decided that he really couldn't improve much further on what they were, what they'd done in the second time, and so that became the actual true remake. Yeah, you need something raw like that to uh, to to count because it's kind of a light boppy song, so you want a little a little of that to yeah, uh, yeah. take the edge off of it. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's a it's a fun song. Um, I and feel, you've heard it a lot. I've heard it a lot, and so, so much that you probably can't judge it anymore. Yeah, exactly. You're right because yeah. of, because it was so so much so evident on on radio and stuff at that time of my life. It has really become oral wallpaper, yep. and it's hard for me to judge it in, in a way. And maybe that's why I like that other version in yeah. a way because it's a fresher version for me. I do like the laughing and the joking and the ha 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 he he mm-hmm. you know that kind of stuff, and the fact that John and George are yelling out arm and foot when you know when when molly leads lends desmond a hand yeah they, that feels a bit like yellow submarine to me with people f- just yelling off to the yeah. side and having a, you get, it feels like they're all having a good time recording it and it like seems like it and it's just funny that it was such a torment and so hated at the same time it just seems you know it's just a funny thing about mccartney and that you know he's obviously this very talented person but blind in a way to almost as per almost asperger's in a way you know what i mean like mm-hmm. this not picking up the fact that everyone is f- done with this song paul <laughs> Everyone, 
But no, fellas, let's do another remake one more time. Good enough. But by listening to that voice that says, you know, what it's what it says, he's become one of the most successful musicians in the world. Yeah. In the most no, successful right. band in the world. That's right. So it's tough to, to it's tough to call yourself on something when it sure worked so it sure, far. It sure is. It is. And then you make back to the egg. Um <laughs> so no- we've all made back to the egg. <laughs> I guess. All right. And so we're going on? Yeah, let's let's talk about wild honey pie, which is kind of a throwaway. I think we would yeah. all agree that. Yeah, whatever. It was you know, a, it's the kind of thing you like if you like that kind of thing. Yeah. There you go. It cleanses the palate. It gets the job done. There's no lyrics really in it. Uh, yeah. So I can't comment much on it. Yeah, it's, it was just, uh, just right? I think he did it by himself. Yeah. There's no other Beatles on it. He just recorded the backing track. He did a bunch of overdubs. He did this incredibly uh, bent string you know, version of, of, of it. And and uh, I guess John and George were busy doing overdubs. No, no, John and Ringo were busy with overdubs. And George was away in Greece on vacation. Mm-hmm. And so he's by himself in the studio and just laid it down and did it it's a and good, it's an okay song for this point in the album and it you know takes care of it but no one's going up to the dj at a wedding and going hey play uh well honey pie we're gonna dance to that it's our favorite song <laughs> just just play just play that song we're all gonna bring everyone to dance we're all gonna have a great time with it but you know what patty harrison liked it and that's probably the reason it made it onto the album fair enough because they're kind of like we don't really need a song and she's like no i like it so they left it on all right and, and who- i think it makes a good it makes a good uh, transition from Obladi Oblada to to the continuing story of Bungalow Bill. Well, do you want to know why we know that it's it's so good? It's because when we're discussing it, our voices get very high, and that's how you know when something's great. Because you're going, no, I think that it's uh, it's a good piece, and it's <laughs> got a real reason for me. <laughs> that's how you know. Well, I do like it. No, I'm sure you do. I do like it. I know I have nothing against, against it. it myself, Dave. I I like it. No, I'm sure you do. Unlike the next song, which I do not like <laughs> very much at all. Yeah, and I mean, I wouldn't have. I know when I first heard it, I thought, oh, this is an okay song. But at this point of my Beatles listening, it really does not make me happy when the song I comes thought, on. okay, I, I looked up what the song was about afterwards. Yeah. yeah. I got it wrong for all of my life. Well, what did you think it was about? Let's war. hear it. I thought it was oh, okay. about war. I thought it was about a guy who goes to war. Yeah. And, it's, and they're just comparing people that go to war mm-hmm. as like, you know, the noble guy who goes to war and I shot this guy. and uh, yeah. But he was coming at me and it was the right thing to do. But, sure. you know, you'd rather go with your mom because you're a bit of a, you know, you're not the big man that you, that you said you were. I thought yeah. it was just like an anti-killing you know, in general song yeah. and making fun of the, you know, the noble guy with the gun who's out there shooting things and then found out it was about a real guy yeah, who uh, shot a tiger and John Lennon thought, whoa, what a jerk this guy is. Well, yeah, I guess his, his there were some wealthy, wealthy Americans who came to stay at the ashram while the Beatles were there. And uh, the guy's name, his name was Richard A. Cook III, mm-hmm. known as Rick to his friends. and Known uh, as the man with the richest sounding name in history. In history. <laughs> And so while they were there, he and his mother went off hunting tigers on elephants. Mm. And so, you know, it's just kind of weird that, you know, you leave the ashram, you leave this place where you're meditating and becoming one with the universe to go and slaughter some tigers and then return once again to become one with the universe. You know, it just seems very kind of hypocritical. And I think that's where Lennon was coming at it from. Uh, They, the people it's about have defended themselves and kind of presented their own side. Which was... Which was that the tiger came out? They them? were told that it was uh, it was a traditional thing to do that, and so you know they were kind of told that this is what people do when they come there, and they All did right. it. They weren't, and they actually they were attacked by a tiger. Right now, this it wasn't is, just they just didn't go and search. Yeah, they were, it, okay. It, let it me let me speak the, for the tiger on that sure. point. Okay, so said tiger, who has seen people on elephants in the past, yeah. shooting other tigers. Yeah. this tiger decides to attack the people on the elephants. Yeah. 
that's a sensible move on that tiger's part. <laughs> but it's not like the tiger's just coming out of nowhere and picking a fight. These yeah. guys were on their way to kill other tigers. Yeah. So after a certain point, nature figures out what you're doing and will try and stop you. Yeah. So, no, that's no excuse. Tiger attacked you. Well, what were you going to do anyway? I was going to shoot a tiger. So you shot a tiger, but the tiger... But you were going to shoot a tiger anyway. Yeah. So there's no excuse there. Yeah. No, Stop I, it. I, I it's like saying I'm going on go out in a murder spree, and then a guy go, but I shot the guy who came at me. Yeah, but you were going to kill people anyway. So hey man, I didn't it. say they ably defended themselves. I just said they. I just hate your anti-tiger agenda here. <laughs> and also, yeah, I don't, I don't really care for the song that much. Yeah, myself. It's just kind of a slapdash thing. I mean, it was intentionally done as kind of a sing-along, and yep. it's got Yoko, Yoko singing on it. She sings uh, "Not When You Look So Fierce," and uh, it's the first lead vocal by a woman on a Beatles song. Okay. And the little flamenco part that starts it, mm-hmm. it's from a Mellotron. It's just one of those, if you play the keyboard on the left side, it'll play like actual riffs of things. And that's just one of the keys was a flamenco setting. And so if you just pressed on the key, it played that little bit. It also has Chris Thomas, uh, the assistant producer. He plays, he adds a, a mandolin-like part on, man, on the Mellotron in the verses. And then he plays this kind of a, what's called the trombone part on the, uh, the choruses. And it kind of plays out. You can kind of hear this at the end of the, the song that's that's the Mellotron okay yeah let's go into a better song let's do that although I do like when when Lennon yells hey up at the end <laughs> and then it goes into the piano part for while my guitar gently weeps that's and great. you are and you are totally right that it needed wild honey pie because if you went from oblada to bungalow bell boy you'd really not like bungalow bell yeah. I think yeah, yeah. Uh, you really don't like well honey pie do you no nah, really well no no I song. think it's a good spacer it's a good spacer. It's a it's, it's something a in a, it's something in a sandwich that you don't necessarily. It's the cucumber in a sandwich. You need it. I like cucumber in I, sandwiches. I'm pro. I think I think I'm pro cucumber. Dave <laughs> likes cucumbers. Hates tigers. Moving on. Uh, while my guitar gently weeps. Yeah. He's, what do you think of this song? I I love this song. You love this song. I love this song. I think like from the title on, mm-hmm. it's one of the most perfect songs. Yeah. That the Beatles have ever done. Uh, like just the just the line while my guitar gently weeps. Yeah. Sold. Yeah. That's fantastic. Just that on alone is like, as a writer, it's like if you if you could if you could write something like that, uh, you can pat yourself on the back for a week. That's fantastic. And then and then the song just sweeps sweeps you through beautifully. Yeah. Beautiful. Song. It's beautifully paced. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, that just that's a that's you, one of my favorites. The only part I don't like about it, if I was going to criticize it, would be that kind of customary George accusatory aspect to the song. Oh, like, like what? The kind of this finger pointing, you know. There's that element to it of he's you know, young. You did, yes, he's young. But what's interesting is when you're talking about looking at things as connected is is George was reading the I Ching, the Book of Changes, and it talks in there about everything everything being relative, being being connected. And uh, so he was visiting his parents, and he thought to himself, the first thing I pick up, the first thing I read, I'm going to I'm going to make that into a song. And so he picked up a book, mm-hmm. he turned the book over, and it said gently weeps. And so he took that gently weeps and he turned it into the song. This is really, inter- I think it's really interesting, a really great genesis to the song. But uh, it was also worked on in uh, in India as well. So he kind of had the genesis for it, yeah. and then he worked on it in India. There's a fair argument uh, that you're making here that this whole uh, mistakes and coincidence and happenstance are actually a good way to write things. You know, when you were saying mm-hmm. like earlier, maybe not a good way to run a business. Not a good way to run a business. No, I mean, it, it does work. But I mean, the fact that George was a- able enough, I mean, if I were to turn a book over and read Gently Weeps, I would not write my guitar Gently Weeps. Believe me, it doesn't matter how long I took spent trying to write it. Mm-hmm. I could not write a song as great as that. I mean, there's an element of talent 
you know, a fantastic oh, genius to bringing, the Beatles as well. You're bringing ham to the cheese. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm doing a lot of sandwich stuff. You are. You're I, I should get a sandwich later on. You, <laughs> okay. You, um, I, mean, I don't eat ham, though, so I can't do that. Oh, oh well. Moving on. <laughs> How about shellfish? Um, the, uh, he, this is another song that went through a few different versions as well, because he, he did like a, a all-acoustic version, just him with an acoustic guitar oh, okay. that a harmonium was uh, dubbed onto later. And just very very simple version, and then and then he didn't he he may have just been doing that as like a demo for the other other Beatles to hear how the song went though, so then he started another one, and this was when the Beatles discovered a particularly important thing. They discovered that there was an eight track machine hiding at Abbey Road. <laughs> no one had told them about it. No one mentioned the fact that there was an eight track machine sitting at Abbey Road for about six months. Well, they're going to try it in studios and working there mm-hmm. because at Abbey Road or at EMI Studios, there was a very strict rule that one did not use, an in- not use any equipment until it had been carefully tested by this guy named Francis Thompson. That was his job. Mm-hmm. He went through and made sure it was up to, up to snuff, that it met the high standards of the white-coated lab technicians that worked at Abbey Road Studios. And so... Um, what happened was the technical engineer, whose name was Dave Harries, and uh, the engineer, Ken, St- Ken Scott, who replaced um, Jeff Emmerich, they snuck into Thompson's, Thompson's office and they liberated the 8-track <laughs> and installed it into Studio 2. Harries almost lost his job over it, but I uh, was able to keep it because, you know, it was the Beatles. So that yeah, it's of, the Beatles. Yeah, you of, can take the 8-track. You can take it. <laughs> so, yeah, that was... They'll so, buy you another. The It'll problem, be okay. The problem, though, is because it hadn't been fully tested, is it had a problem, though, when it was spooled back when they went to spool back to overdub or something like that it would come through the headphones mm. this were this incredibly loud sound of the tape running through that past the head and so the beatles would unless someone forgot to, un- to mute it and if they did because they weren't used to that so they often would forget to mute it this this incredible blast would go through the beatles headphones and they weren't very happy about that but they did like having the eight track so well my guitar gently weeps the remake the sec the second version through is the first song that the beatles recorded at abbey road on on an 8-track. And this was the night that Ringo came back. The se- for the second time through, Ringo came back to um, lend a hand. And they welcomed back to the studio with a big thing of flowers on his drum. drum. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that uh, Mel Evans set up. That was George's idea, and that Mel Evans set up all these flowers on his... Yeah, it was nice, actually. And the water from them wrecked the drums completely, and he could never use them again. <laughs> so, yeah, so the second version of it, George wanted to get the sound of a crying guitar. So he spent, like, this long, super long session... Uh, doing doing backwards guitar, so they play the song backwards, right? And George would play the guitar forwards with the backwards part of the song to teach himself. Wow! And then it would be reversed, and he just tried. He just couldn't. He wasn't happy with it at all, though. Yeah. He just kept trying and trying, and this wasn't working. And so uh, then he decided, after doing all that, two two days later, he decided to scrap the whole the whole uh, track. And then um, and then what happened was they did another track, and this one was a different key, so it was a bit of a change. And then he asked his friend Eric Clapton to play guitar on it. And Eric Clapton was like, what? Listen, other people, mere mortals, do not play on Beatles songs, okay? No, you know, he's like, it's my song. Why not? I'm a Beatle. It's my song. I'm inviting you. So Clapton's but like, I'm okay. just Eric Clapton. That's right. I've never played a guitar in my life. And he tried it for the first time. And I, can, uh, I can barely do it. So yeah, so Eric Clapton came into the studio and he, and he did this guitar solo. And like, uh, the people who were there said he came in. He was just like a session musician. Just came in, very quiet, did his part, no fuss, no muss. And he commented when he was there, he said, he said he was with the cream at the time, and he said, the, he said, the, in cream, we, um, 
we practice, practice, practice. Like we just rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. And then we go into the studio. And the guy talking said, the Beatles were the opposite. The Beatles, you know, just came in and recorded, recorded, recorded until the hundredth time. And then they might be happy with it or they might not, you know. Right. And that was just the difference between them. But the difference was the Beatles recorded for free. The cream would have to pay for their studio time. So, you know, they had to be aware of the fact that it was costing them money to be recording. Um, what's interesting was Clapton didn't play his own guitar. He played a, a Les Paul, a red finished Les Paul called Lucy that he had given uh, George. And so, because George liked to name his uh, guitars, his his, his uh, SG that he had carefully painted was called Sparky. No, his Fender Stratocaster, sorry, was called uh, Sparky. And uh, yeah, so he got, he got this guitar. So I was reading about the history of the guitar. It's interesting. It was actually owned by Rick Derringer, who played in the McCoys. Okay. And it was a gold finished, gold top finished Les Paul. It was kind of a traditional style Les Paul. And it was a bit rough looking though. It was it it had already come down through several hands before it came to him. But he really loved that guitar. So he decided he was going to refinish. Get it refinished, and he decided on this red finish for it. So he got it refinished, and after that, it was never the same for him. He it never mm. felt the same. And so he sold it to a music shop in New York, and then Eric Clapton bought it. And Clapton played it for a while, and he quite liked it. But he gave it to he gave it to George. So then George had this red guitar, red Les Paul guitar. This and guitar could have its own movie. And that's what uh, that's what Clapton played. Yeah, that's right. And then so um, and then George basically this Les Paul became his guitar of choice through through recording through sixty eight sixty nine. And so what was his previous favorite guitar, his uh, Gibson SG, he gave to Pete Ham from Badfinger. And that became Pete Ham's song. So if you look at like there's a there's a kind of a promo film of of Badfinger playing no matter what. You can see George's SG, Pete Ham playing it in that video. And so when Clapton did his his solo, he he and George they didn't want it to sound too much like Clapton. They, it sounded more beatly, so they they ADT'd it. And uh, Chris Thomas' job was to waggle the switch to make it even more kind of give it more of a kind of a vibrato sound. And uh, that was his job, just wiggling the switch to oscillate it. And he did it for hours as they were <laughs> doing the mix. Yeah. So yeah, that's interesting. But I love that song. I think it's a very good song. Very, very good song. We're in agreement. For a change. All right. Let's and see then what it, happens with the next song. Then. And it goes into the best song on on, Abby, on, on the White Album. Okay. Uh, Happiness is a Worm Gun. Okay. I particularly like the song, so I will brook no argument. All right. I, I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to brook an argument. <laughs> in fact, the Beatles all like this song a lot. I think they really enjoyed it. And partly because it was really hard to play. And they actually played it live in the, in the studio. They actually took the time and the trouble to, and the 95 takes, to get it right. Because it's a very, 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 very metrically tricky song. Now, is this a Paul song? This is a John song. Wow, that shocks me. Does it? Completely shocks me. That he's singing it? No, 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 no. I'll, t- I'll tell you why. Okay. Because this this, uh, this uh, does what Paul does when he goes to Wings. Yeah. With like uh, Live and Let Die and uh, Ban on the Run. Okay. It's one of these songs that just changes radically throughout the okay. song. Like it, yeah. it, it felt like such a signature thing of Paul's, yeah. you know, with, with this. And it, it really does remind me a lot of uh, of Live and Let Die. Huh. You know, it just yeah. goes, goes to those dramatic shifts. And now yeah. you're, are we in a different song? And yeah. yeah. Once, once again, it's a case where uh, John took three different songs he was working on and he put them together into one song. This could actually be a James Bond theme song without <laughs> too much tweaking. <laughs> could be Happiness is a That would be a good name for a James Bond movie. Yeah. And if it does feel, I'll just say this real quickly, it also feels like the father of Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay. You know, which is another one, a song about mama. You know, a lot of uh, mama and guns and mama, I did this sure. and mama. Okay. Yeah. 
that has more of a story, but and and somewhat. like Bohemian, Bohemian Rhapsody, radically changes what the song is during the course of the song. Well, let me radically change your view of the song. Okay. Well, I, I like it. Of, I like it a lot. So, are you going to change that part of it? I don't know. Just Mother oh. Superior. Yeah. Was a nickname of for Yoko Ono that George or that John. Oh, is that yeah, right? That's from who Mother Superior. So is. now, when uh, Mother Superior jumped the gun, what does that mean? I think it's sexual. I think oh, it's, it's a sexual his, reference. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, he was right in the hot and heavy part of his relationship with her. Wait a and second. So a are you saying? Of, are you saying that mm, the gun in this is not a gun? Sometimes a gun is not a gun. Oh. Yeah. Well, there we go. <laughs> we would go farther on that, but we do not have an explicit rating on this. <laughs> it's can. a family-friendly, all-ages show. That's right. Make your own. Sometimes a gun is not a gun. All right. So I just wanted to talk about uh, the 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 really hard. Uh, it's because. Uh, Mc- Ian McDonald, once again, Revolution in the Head, did the hard work of figuring out the metric. That, so he says, okay, I'm going to go through it all. Starting with four <laughs> bars of common time, the first section changes key for an eight and three quarter bar passage that goes like this. This is the this is the time signatures. All right. One bar, four, four, four time. One bar, two, four time. Six bars of four, four time. One bar of one, four time. Another bar of four, four time. But for moving on to the second section, twice around 11 <laughs> bars in three eighth time, grouped as 3 plus 4 plus 4, with the extra complication of a rising two-bar bass phrase in a round with the vocal. After one tacit bar, that's the quiet quiet part, the third (laughs) section arrives three times around a highly unstable structure, one bar of 6 eighths, one bar of 8 eighths, one bar of 4 eighths, one bar of 6 eighths, one bar of 8 eighths, and one bar of 6 eighths, before going into the closing section, which consists of four bars of 4-4 time, 12 bars of 3 eighths time, with the drums continuing in 4-4, four, 4-4-4, four. Four of four, four, an out-of-tempo pause on F minor, and a final five bars of 4-4. Four, four. Now you know why it took 95 takes for them to get it right. That felt like I was in church and I was hearing the baguette. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, so who who was Ham's father Sorry. again? Sorry um, okay, wait, uh, Elijah was what time signature? Everybody. Okay. You can re- you can rewind on your pod. You can rewind when you're listening to a podcast. So yes. If you need to. And it was two takes, take 53 and 65, that were actually the final ones. Because they really, they just could not get it perfectly <laughs> perfect. Even though they tried 95 times, they had to go back to find two tracks that had perfectly done parts and put those together. Now, Dave, I'm just going to ask Fire you something. 134. I'm going to ask you an overall question about sure. the podcast in general. Yeah. When you're saying all these incredibly detailed things, do you think that we're attracting those weirdos you were talking about before? <laughs> and at some point when the podcast is done, they're going to cut us open to try and get inside our brain meat yeah. and try to get more details out because we've uh, we've uh, teased them with I, those? I do think that. but I'm, I think you're in danger as soon as this podcast but, is done and should leave the country. But unlike you, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> okay. Dave is looking forward to you. Yeah. <laughs> visiting him all right sounds fair please continue <laughs> um so yeah so obviously it has the four separate sections we you know but the mother's here all right the kind of folk style finger picking opening the bluesy i need to fix and then the closing doo-wop section and apparently the first part is based in uh an acid trip that derek taylor the, the beatles press officer and john lennon took together and a lot of them are actual things that they saw in, in los angeles when they did this oh is so that right the lizard okay. on the window pane and then the man with the mirrors was apparently a real person who would uh, put mirrors on his boots and go to like foot, football matches and he would look up a women's Ladies, dress. uh, yeah. dresses. Yeah. yeah. And the that's t- what you did before the internet, fellas. That's right. That's what you had to do. That's what you had to do. And the title of the song comes from a slogan for the National Rifle Association, mm-hmm. which was in a magazine, which the, the actual, the original title of the song was Happiness is a Warm Gun in Your Hand. 
Now, my question to you is this. Um, with the uh, Back in the USSR, Americans uh, thought that it was pro-communist. Yeah. Did the people who were pro-gun hear this and think it was pro-gun? I don't think they took it in that sense. So irony in one case taken, irony in another case not taken. That's... Yeah. Okay. Well, in both cases, I think they read, read the surface. Okay. Right? Interesting. All right. Yeah. I'm just curious. Um, yeah. And also, this song, when we spoke about the flugelhorn. This song has a tuba in it. <laughs> it was it was mixed really low, uh, mixed out practically. Mixed All right. out entirely. So those are you spotting the flugel. This isn't I don't the one know why they would have a tuba. Maybe just to kind of give it more, even more bass. Kind of the sort of, because I keep thinking of creeping. When you, we talk about creeping nun, mm-hmm. now I keep thinking of songs as creeping, like the end of Glass Onion as creeping. Yeah. And then this song having kind of a creeping oh, element Oh, there's a lot of creep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I uh, I do like Happiness is a Warm Gun quite a bit. Okay, good. I'm glad I don't have to. And it also, to. it's another funny song. It is funny in a way. It really is. A, it's a funny song. It's yeah, kind of, yeah. kind of funny. Kind of weird. It's kind of depressed, kind of funny. It's sort of well, that's British humor a lot of it. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, we'll get to we'll get to a little uh, other thing about British humor later on. But uh, they can do dark quite well, and people are fine with that. And then in George Martin tradition, we've closed outside one with a song that you cannot follow. So let us take lift up the record, turn it over, put down the needle for side two. Okay. And uh, a Paul McCartney song. I think if you heard the song, you and you didn't know who Paul McCartney was. I didn't know how, what he sounded like, but you kind of knew what he, what he, who he was. You would say, "Oh, this is a Paul McCartney song." And is it? Yes, it is. Oh, yeah. good. Okay, yeah. good. Because I've kind been of fooled jaunty... before. I've been fooled before. Oh, okay, yeah, yes. But that kind of jaunty song. But what's interesting about it is, yeah, it... that's a good way of describing it. It's definitely jaunty. Yeah, yeah. And with the kind of musical element of the piano. Yeah, picks you up. Yeah, All right. it is a pick. I'm up. awake now. It is a pick me up. You know, like yeah. it's, it's you want a you want a jaunty song. You want a rocker for your first side. Yeah. Your second side, you need you just need some little spirited openings to. It feels like in the concert, the that one would have ended. If you had an intermission in your concert, yeah. happiness is a warm gun. Everyone's sweaty. They all go get a drink, come back, and now we got to pick them back up again. This is a good start. Happiness is a warm gun is the song that makes you want to turn it over and hear what, what, what Absolutely. else is Absolutely, right? and you don't expect this. Yeah. And You're like you ready, song. like, all right, all right, I'm ready like, for a wah, wah, wah. But what's interesting is this song also, it's almost like Paul McCartney, after working for, you know, 10 days on, uh, on uh, happiness is a warm gun, thought this is kind of fun i like this kind of weird time signatures because this song also has a kind of a a weird little time signature part where it stretches a bar at one point so it kind of stretches out into six four time at one point it's almost like he's just sort of playing with that element of of time and then you know it's probably like the flip side of the coin of happiness is the warm gun too just because it's a happy Mm -hmm. go lucky fun song although the lyrics i don't know are they that happy it relates to jane asher who at that time had broken up with paul their relationship had ended well, I mean, it's um, about a silly girl, but not yeah. necessarily in a good a good way. I mean, or a bad way. You're just, yeah. yeah, almost, yeah, dismissive of her. She's just a silly girl. Yeah, that's what that's what she is. Mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Take that as you want or not. I don't think anyone would like to be called a silly girl. So let's uh, take that as negative, I suppose. And uh, the the namesake of the song is is uh, Paul's uh, English sheepdog Martha. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so he used her name, and then uh, wrote a song about his ex girlfriend. Weird. <laughs> you know, interpret as you will. That's not our job. Wait, it is kind of. We do sort of make our own. That's pretty much. Yes, it is. All right. Um, let's go on to... Uh, I don't think... If, unless you have something more to say about this song. Cause to me, it's no. just a real throwaway. Yeah, it's like a... It's a lot of fun. Go. I like it a lot. Once but... again, my palate is cleansed. Yeah. And uh, had a nice cup of tea and we're, uh, we're on to the next let's song. Let's go on to another superlative song in this album. I just love this song <laughs> do so Do you like much. this song Oh, I do like this song a lot. This song is the performance is great. Yeah, I'll agree with that. The completely. lyrics are great too. Yeah, the lyrics are fantastic. It's a it's a it's an oddball song. Like it's uh, you're doing a song about being tired. It's just 
it's almost the you opposite. You the song about I'm only sleeping, so... Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. Well, that's a little bit different. This one sure. actually is just like, uh, like you could actually yeah. almost, to some parts before it gets aggressive, yeah. fall asleep to it. Yeah. And it seems a weird choice uh, in an album to put a song like that in. Like, it's a brave choice. But it has that insomniac feel, the one that you're tired, but then Oh, that, and then you're and upset. That angry that oh, you can't so go to sleep. Oh, so I can't sleep. Yeah, and then like, yeah. oh, now, wait, now, yeah. now I'm catching a wave. And then, oh, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, it's totally, it's a great insomnia song. Apparently, when John was at Ricochet, Rishikesh, he um, he suffered from insomnia, which apparently can happen sometimes if you meditate a lot. Mm-hmm. You can have trouble sleeping, and it might be just that your your body is so rested that it has trouble going back into a into a sleep state. Well, part of also the meditation is you're trying not to sleep. You're, yeah, you're, you're doing a lot of stuff that would normally put you to sleep, but you're training yourself not to sleep so that when you're actually sleeping, uh-huh. you can't do the old. You yeah, know, you start breathing. You're like yeah. now I'm focusing on my breathing. Oops, I'm awake. <laughs> Good point. Also, he was. Um, he was, uh, you know, in the midst of this long-distance relationship with, with Yoko. And so that's another part of it, the frustration, the sexual frustration of that as well. He's fallen in love with this woman who's unattainably far from him, but who's writing him these coy, jokey postcards and stuff like that, you know, telling him that she's a cloud in the sky and he just has to look up and see her there and stuff like that, you know. And um, yeah, the, the thing, I just want to say one thing about John Lennon. <laughs> That'd be funny if she's doing that, going like, trying to give him ideas for songs. I'm a cloud in the sky. You're looking up and seeing me. Hmm. Oh, I came up with an idea for a song. What is it? It's about how exhausted I am. Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> yes. You're, okay. So One then, more thing about John Lennon, you were saying? I was just going to say, because Lennon more than once complained about the fact that he felt his songs got short shrift from George Martin, from the other Beatles, from Paul particularly. And do you think that was fair? I don't think that's fair at all. Okay. I don't think that's fair at all. But, you know, I can see why he felt that way. Because everyone feels that way about whatever they do, mm-hmm. that no one's paying enough attention to them. And a person who was an only child who, you know, had m- mummy issues definitely needed a lot of attention paid to him, and that was John Lennon. But one problem John Lennon had was that he was not he was not an articulate man. When it, like, he couldn't articulate the musical things that he wanted. You know, when he, you know, trying to describe what he wanted for Tomorrow Never Knows, he said, I want the sound of a thousand monks on the mountainside. Well, that's good but impossible to reach so what's what's next from that right like what yeah. what can we do to get you to that point you know and so i mean it gave a broad palette to george martin i think george martin did more interesting work with john than he did with paul like his, you know his stuff for paul is perfectly competent and very nice the r- string arrangement for for um martha for martha my dear is very fun it's a nice it's a very nice thing but nowhere is nearly as interesting as the one for glass onion because paul would have given him a real precise idea of what he wanted you know that he wanted this kind of horn section he wanted strings he wanted to sound a certain way and so george would go with that with that you know uh brief and he would write to that idea george john would say something totally different than that he'd say you know i wanted to sound like a person getting out of a car and then you know write that George and so then George would have to go off and think well what was a, what does a person getting out of a car sound like I'll write it like that you know what I mean and so right. I'm using it as a silly example but just that's what he would kind of give him these kind of very loose ideas so and the other thing with John is that John wanted things to happen yesterday he didn't want to wait for tomorrow he wanted it to happen he didn't want to, he didn't even want to wait for now he wanted mm-hmm. it to happen two hours ago and so when he was writing doing a song when he's performing a song he didn't want to work on it. He didn't want to be a Paul McCartney. I mean, sometimes he would. Sometimes he would take the time. I mean, Strawberry Fields is an example where it went through various incarnations to get to what he heard in his head. But that, you know, that had a very personal meaning to, great personal meaning to him, that song. Sometimes it just seemed like he just couldn't wait to be gone, like to get the thing done and be, and be finished. I mean, there's tons of points 
if you, in the the session tapes and stuff like that where it's just John saying, you know, quick, quick, the red light's on. Let's make a record. Let's go. Let's go. Like he's so excited. Let's let's get this done. Let's go. Let's get this done fast. So you know, like on this night, he did "I'm So Tired" and the continuing story of Bungalow Bill. Both those songs were recorded and finished the same night. You know, like he just wants he just wanted to get it done. Yeah. And so that was part of his personality. So I think his complaint isn't really ground isn't really grounded. I mean. For one thing, I think that he got the best work out of George Martin that George Martin could possibly give him. I mean, stuff like I Am the Walrus, which is such a great song, or Sherry Fields, which is another great song. You know, those songs have, like, the best of George Martin in them. have the best of the Beatles in it, you know. So I don't think he's being very fair to himself, but or to the others in that in that sense. But I, th- I just wanted to bring that up. Because just listening to the song made me think about it. Now, with the rush, rush, rush uh, aspect of uh, what he was feeling, w- was that partially because uh, this album was so incredibly long? Like, no, this no, song no. Was, this album is way more packed than any of their previous albums. No, no, I think they wanted that. They wanted, uh, George Martin felt partly because they wanted to get out of their EMI contract. They oh, wanted okay. to put as many songs as possible on, on the album. But um, That was one thing we, also, didn't, we didn't actually answer was, like, why this album okay. is so much longer than any previously. Yeah. That was for the next show. No, it's just, I think <laughs> okay. because, well, because we we kind of talked about it. They came back from India, absolutely, I mean, they came back with India. Full, full of uh, full songs. Of, full of songs. I mean, so they, do them. Yeah, they sat down and did 25, demo, 25 songs on demo, and they wrote more songs as they were, right. as they were, as they were doing the album, which was common. So it's, uh, you know, I think they, I think once they, I mean, it just, I don't think... They were re- prepared as a group anymore to lose songs, to have okay. songs cut out. They didn't have the ego for that anymore. They didn't. Yeah, have, they, I can see that. They didn't. They were too proud to to go through that. They they didn't. Um, they didn't uh, want, and they didn't want to. They didn't want their song to be to be lost out to the other person's song. You know, yeah. they didn't. You know, George didn't want to have to have only one song on two two records. You know, he wanted to have at least four songs on on, on the records. And so, if that's the case, then. Paul wants this many songs on and George wants this many songs on and Ringo needs songs too. So, you know, you have all these different things happening. Yep, that all makes sense. So, um, yeah, speaking about Ringo, the drum part in this song is fantastic. Just so great. I just, I really do like the song a lot. I'm I think glad he came back. I think, it's, I think it's really good. And then John ends the song with by muttering. Uh, he muttered the words, Monsieur, Monsieur, how about another one? He says, which became part of the Paul is dead myth because apparently... If you listen to it backwards, it supposedly says, Paul is dead man, miss him, miss him. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> so there you go. By the way, if you, uh, if you, if you want to hear a good thing on back, uh, back masking, uh, there's a, um, oh, darn it. I'm trying to remember the, the podcast now, but it's, uh, the, the title of the podcast is, uh, Mar- it's fun to smoke marijuana. And they okay. show you how once someone said something to you, if you listen to backmasking, you can't not, not hear it. it. Yeah, that, no, it's and true. so that's the trick of back uh, backmasking. Yeah. I think it was yeah. Freakonomics. That's what it was. Okay, Freakonomics. Okay, yeah. yeah. No, I'm sure that's true because the way your mind works is once it picks up a, a pattern like yeah. that. If someone goes like they say, "Paul is dead, man." Yeah, you listen to Ryan, you are, and now now yeah. you're getting that. You yeah. can't not hear it. You won't hear cranberry sauce anymore. Oh, cranberry sauce. I hear cranberry sauce, but it depends what you. Dave just hears cranberry sauce randomly. It's, uh, it's odd. It's odd that he does. So, um, let's, we want to talk about Blackbird, or do you have something you want to say about I'm So Tired? No, no, let's get to Blackbird. Besides the fact that Walter Raleigh is such a stupid git. <laughs> what? He's, that's what John says in the song, right? Oh, is that right? Okay. Something like that. Fair enough. He's so mad at him for inventing smoking. In a, in, that's... <laughs> okay. Um, well, let's all agree to that. Yeah. yeah. Walter Raleigh? Stupid git. Stupid git. All right. Seconded. So. Robert's Roots of Order. We're moving forward, and we're getting to Blackbird. Getting to Blackbird. Um... Yeah, in- interesting. 
interesting song. Like when the Beatles were staying in Rishikesh, they had no access to electricity while they were there. So they couldn't bring their electric pianos. They couldn't bring their electric guitars and stuff like that. All they had was their acoustic guitars. So, and then Donovan was there as well. And Donovan came out of a different scene than they did. They came out of, you know, a R&B rocker kind of scene. And he came out of folk music. Mm -hmm. And so he showed them a style of uh, finger picking called the Travis style after Merle Travis. And what it is, is it's you play bass with your thumb and you you form a lot of your chords on two strings. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of an easy way to learn finger picking. And so, you know, the Beatles t- took that and they kind of ran with it. And so Dear Prudence and I'm So Tired and uh, Blackbird and lots of other songs, Mother Nature's Son, which we'll talk about next time, all follow fall into this, into this uh, style of playing. The other interesting thing about um, music of that time period was, was as we hit, got to the end of the, the 60s, you know the roots of you know the roots music was country music and blues music you know if i said to you what about folk music that'd be like okay some folk music well, what about tin pan music or tin pan alley music you know the kind of songwriting of, of george gershwin or no or no coward or or you know um cole porter or whoever people like that what about that kind of no that would be unacceptable hmm. you know and the beatles paul mccartney kind of stuck out like a sore thumb with things like honey pie and and when I'm 64, but that was pretty rare that people were doing what, what your, you know, your mother should know. I mean, that was not a common song stylings of the day. You know, he was really the, one of the very few groups who were reviving that kind of style. Right. You know, in a serious, in a serious way. I mean, the Bonzos did too, but they were more of a novelty act. You know, I'm bringing a watermelon to my girlfriend, you know, and, and my brother makes noises for the talkies and all this kind of jollity farm and these old songs, you know, that they would see to search out. Um, yeah. And what's so, it's interesting, like, so that Tin Panelli side of it became less acceptable. And so it kind of fell out of the wayside of what Roots music is, even though it it obviously informs not just the, the Beatles, but the Kinks, the Rolling Stones, like on, on their album Between the Buttons, all have a real musical element to their music, you know, but it became less acceptable as the time came on. And so they all kind of shed that element of themselves. Um, but yeah, so I was just thinking about that because of the, the kind of folk part of 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 what um, this like the the Rishikesh experience that folk part of it you know right. where something that they probably didn't think about very much I think they did a little bit but not as much as as they did to other kinds of music it, you know being there being with Donovan it kind of exposed them to this oh this new kind of alternate way of writing songs and just the finger picking style and this is really interesting and a lot of time to practice and why yeah a lot of time to practice and why they wrote so many songs is because suddenly you have this whole new way of writing music you know as, whereas before you were playing chords you're strumming chords in a guitar or playing vamping chords on a piano. Now you're finger picking and it's opening up to a whole new thing because you can leave out notes out of the chord as well. You know, so it's it became a whole new interesting way to write for them. Yeah, it feels like you can make uh, more intimate songs out of it. And this this does feel like an intimate yeah. song. And we'll see later, especially on Abbey Road, uh, George's arpeggiated guitar style, which grew out of this as well, I, I believe. Grew out of playing there where you needed to play uh, arpeggiated notes in order to get sustain in what you're doing. So if you're playing like a long... If you're singing like a longer note over a chord to make the chord stretch out, which, you know, if you're playing an electric guitar, you just strum it once and the, the sustain keeps it going for quite a while. An acoustic guitar doesn't, doesn't have that. So you have to play that note to continue to play it while you, while you stretch out the note. And so that grew, grew into part of their playing as well and would certainly inform somewhat let it be, but, but well, let it be quite a bit, I guess. And also, um, and also Abbey Road. Right. But, um, yeah. So now the song itself, what do you think of it? 
Oh, that's a beautiful song. It is a very beautiful song. Yeah, yeah. I think it. I think it unfortunately falls with me in the same way of Ubladi Ublada, and that I've heard it so much. Yeah, and I've heard yeah. so many people do it. Like yeah. it's such a someone's got a guitar at a party. Okay, what are they going to be playing? Yeah. Well, eh, here comes Blackbird, and it's it, and that's not the song's fault. The song no. is so beautiful and so simple that. You know that's that's fantastic. You know, mm. the, the, but uh, but I guess yeah. I'm just I've just been oversaturated yeah. a little bit with it. Uh, but it's uh, it's a gorgeous song, and no question about it. Well, it's one of the reasons that I, when my daughters were younger, I didn't play them. I didn't play the Beatles around them a lot. Mm-hmm. All Susan music for that. All just marching, right. just marching bands music, just all the Monty Python theme. Um, Colonel Bogey's march. <laughs> if anyone wants to know what it's called, <laughs> um, and yeah, so because I, I wanted them to have that experience of discovering it. Of it not being oral wallpaper, of not just it being there all the time. Yeah. Some, some of it was because I did listen to it everyone, you know, because I can't help it. But, but uh, you know, my old my older daughter, not so much. My younger daughter definitely went through a crazy Beatles phase when she was in her early teens, which is a, a usual time for us to yeah. go through a Beatles phase. That's the usual time. That is a good time for when her. we discover them around, you know, grade seven, grade eight. We hear them and we're like, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard, you know. And uh, and Paul has said about this song that. Uh, yeah, he was in, he was inspired by um, black people's struggle in the American South, and you don't you're now given a sour face because Dave, you know what Dave likes segregation. No, it's he's not very that. pro. He's a very uh, racist man. So I don't, he's not. A, I don't pick that up from the lyrics. Okay, I, I, I often so wonder, you don't believe Paul when he says this. I often well, I don't. Then I, I also cannot believe I also cannot believe Paul over Lady Madonna as well. I think sometimes okay. we write back into our past. We write back over our history. Mm-hmm. To make things more meaningful than than they were, you know. So I, this song to me sounds like a song about a person who is picking themselves up from from emotional hurt mm-hmm. and moving on with their lives. They're taking their broken wing and learning to fly again, right? You know. And but if Paul wants it to be about segregation, about the civil rights movement, that's fine. Okay. But, but you're uh, not necessarily believing him. When I don't. He says that. I don't know. I just now when De- when John Lennon says uh, "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds," that is not about LSD. You go, uh, yes, I believe him because that's contemporary. Because how so? He was asked about it at the time. Ah, I see. And so retroactively, yeah. you believe uh, you think, uh, yeah. you throw more meaning onto uh, what you say. Okay. Yeah, I All just right. think. Yeah, I just think over time things can change a little bit for, and we we'll, we'll give more meaning to things than they had originally. Okay. But that's fine. I mean, if that's what it was about, if that was about the time, that's fine too. That's that's great. I just don't see it lyrically. It doesn't. Okay. So doesn't uh, Dave sense. has buried Paul's opinion. I have not buried it. <laughs> um, but before we go on, let's mention. The sounds of the birds come from the Abbey Road <laughs> Sound Effects Library. Oh, that crazy person listening is writing it down. And volume he's 7. He's the one who's going to hunt you after this is all done. Volume 7, Birds of a Feather, recorded by the library, <laughs> the custodian of the library himself, mm-hmm. uh, stirred Eltham in his own back garden. Oh, that's recorded nice. The, we recorded a blackbird there. And so it has two sounds. It has one where he's just singing, and then it has one uh, alarm sound, because he saw he was being recorded and was saying, what about copyright? Now... <laughs> Now all of these uh, sound effects are these still available to be purchased? Are those no? Fun? They were just they were in the oh I they understand. Were, they I understand. were just on real to real tapes. They oh, were in house. But say someone uh, say someone wants to use those uh, in their own thing as a little bit of a oh, tribute. It, could they purchase the rights to the sound effects? I don't think that I don't even I don't think the trap, you're listing them nicely for yeah. someone who might want to do this. I don't think the trap room is there as it was once. For, like for to dig through and find sound effects, okay. things like for to find a fireman's bell and find things you can use for yellow submarine. I don't think that's there anymore, and so I kind of feel like the sound effects library might also have dispersed over okay, over the but years. We're not sure. 
Fair enough. But we're not sure. All right. It could have been. It was probably used uh, on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. They would have used it for oh, sure. Oh, interesting. In All right. Well, when we do our Floyd cast, we'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, so, Dark Side uh, of the Pod. Floyd cast. I thought that was about the character from uh, the, the, from the uh, Dr. Teeth. Dr. Teeth, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. There we go. For that, that's our Muppet cast. <laughs> that's for- Listen, we've got these planned for years to come. <laughs> Uh, all right. Are we speaking? Are we moving along? Because it's a wonderful transition from Muppets to the next song. Okay, sure. Let's move on. I did have one little bit more. Trivia, no, no. But... Go ahead. Hit the trivia. Okay. Well, it's Paul McCartney says that Blackbird is based in a Bach song, which is uh, or a Bach piece called Bure in E Minor uh-huh. that he had to learn as a child. So he, he incorporated that into into uh, Blackbird. So yeah, that was sort of the inspiration for the song. Nice. And then uh, and then speaking of Muppets. Speaking of Muppets. Ah, uh, no, we've lost that thread. Uh, Piggies. It's the next song yeah. there. And this feels like, oh, this is such a British song to me. Yes. Why? Oh, it's so Why British. Why? Because it's got that mix of friendly and then horrible menace. Yeah. Like, it's almost like, uh, it's not quite as uh, the mix that you get in Germany yeah. uh, with a German song. But, like, the British song will make it funny and fun, and then they'll be like, they'll all die in the end. That's a kind of British kind of kidsy song. Yeah. I, I heard so many of those kind of dark songs when I was a when I was a kid with British grandparents. <laughs> I like this song, song a lot as a teenager, mm-hmm. but as a as an older person, I find it a bit condescending. Yeah, you want that and kind of thing as a teenager. It I, doesn't. I just think it's it just has that usual, you know, that kind of looking down on the common person, looking at all like, these people scrib- yeah, just that, scrambling also, for a dollar. You also got. the misanthropy, misanthropy or self hatred that you find in 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 uh, the kind of uh, the heart of spiritual people or idealists, you know, where they. You know, there's that element of self-hatred is why they turn to, to these spiritual things or why they turn to spiritual practices because there's an element of part of themselves they're trying to erase, you know, mm-hmm. and has that. And it's just such a, it feels like kind of a clumsy satire of straight society who, come on, they didn't get to ride in limos or live in mansions. So it just seems like here's a guy who gets driven around, lives in a big fancy place calling us piggies. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem very fair. Now, the one thing I can, I can definitely see is like, a, it's a fun song to sing. Yeah. You know, there's a lot it of fun, fun words, you know, uh, uh, bigger piggies and uh, piggy wives, piggy lives. You know, this, mm-hmm. it's it's great. Sometimes lacking, need a darn good whacking. It's it's fun. Like, it's uh, it's fun wordplay. It, 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 it looks like the kind of, you know, when I'm saying uh, British uh, songs are like this, even more than British songs, this looks like uh, the kind of thing you get in a, a old British book of poems, mm-hmm. and you know it'd all be about you know different animals dying in horrible ways, but fun ways, and they're all wearing proper hats, yeah, and yeah. not realizing that they're eating bacon even though they're pigs. <laughs> that seems very British to me. Sure, well, it could be. Oh, it's you think of Animal Farm, then you know where you have the pigs who are the leaders of the of the revolution in the barnyard. It could be part of that. I mean, Harrison actually wrote this in 1966. Or started working on it in 1966, and then he put it away, mm-hmm. and then I guess he dusted it off for for a White Album, and so um, his mum added the line, "What they need is a damn good whacking." That was her contribution, <laughs> and then it was it's a good line. It's a good line, and then and it really feels like a British poem. And then Lennon's line was the one about uh, using ni- forks and knives to eat their bacon. That was that was his contribution as well. So um, yeah, so Chris Thomas, who was producing the session as George was away. Uh, he played the harpsichord on it, and I guess they—I guess he was looking in Studio One, and he saw a harpsichord in there, and he thought, "Oh, this would be perfect." So, he, so he's like, well, "Let's just bring it over to Studio Two for the song." And then the other engineer who'd been there much longer said, "Nope, they can't do that. It would just break the harpsichord." Just you cannot once because they—it's all set up for the next day for for a session. Oh, I see. So you don't want to disturb it, right? So, so instead they 
the Beatles went over there and they, they recorded the song there. So they used the harpsichord and stuff there. But what's interesting is that while they were recording, um, Chris Thomas was sitting at the harpsichord with, with George and George played him something. And Chris Thomas said, well, that's absolutely beautiful. Why don't we do that one instead? Instead of this song, instead of Piggy's, <laughs> why don't we do uh, the something? And he's like, oh, George's like, no, no, I think I'll give it to Jackie Lomax. It's crazy. Such so such so too self-effacing, too self-effacing, George. But I'm keeping piggies. I'm keeping piggies. <laughs> giving away some. He did give away something actually, because it was Joe Cocker recorded it before the Beatles did, but it was released after the Beatles version. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Neat. But anyway, that's um, some good Dave trivia there. Yes, and then the uh, John Lennon, his contribution to the song is he made the tape loop of uh, pigs grunting. <laughs> he put it together with uh, with a mixture of the noises from the record and some, their own beetle noises, beetle, beetle grunting. And uh, from the sound effects library, of course, volume 35, <laughs> Animals and Bees, which was used, uh, it was also used on Good Morning, Good Morning, Animals and Bees, nice. volume 35. Nice. All right, so let's move on to the third in a row of animal songs. And that's no coincidence <laughs> because they actually, when they sequence it, they put all the songs with animal names in the title titles together. So we get... Blackbird, Piggies, and Rocky Raccoon. So this is not an answer to pet sounds. No, this is not. <laughs> okay. This was not the response to pet sounds. No, All right. No. Because, yeah, when I was a kid, I always thought, I always pictured this song as being about a raccoon. Me too. But it's not. It's no, it's obviously not. Just not a guy. This is a guy whose last name is Raccoon. Did you prefer the song more when you thought about it as a raccoon? I, no. I like the idea of a raccoon going into a room and finding Gideon's Bible. <laughs> that yeah. uh, that makes me laugh, the okay. thought of that. Yeah. Just a guy. It's like, not as much. Uh, I don't know. I still like it because I like it because it's a detail. I like the detail of the song. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what I like about it. The original, once again, it was done in Rishikesh, but um, the original name of it was Rocky Sassoon. Okay. Which McCartney changed to Raccoon because he thought it sounded more cowboy. How someone being called Raccoon sounds more cowboy, I don't know. It's kind of like... It's kind of like if you read French comics and they have like these sort of tough American characters, but they have weird names like Largo Winch or, <laughs> or Buck Danny. Or just, yeah. These are real names and they just feel kind of weird because they're not actually names. Yeah. Can you think of any famous cowboys that are named after animals? Yeah. Like I can't at all. No, none at all. So, uh, Buffalo was... Bill. Oh, well, uh, asked and answered, but, sir. But having a last For name a is reason. different. No one broke a uh, raccoon spirit yeah. and then wrote it around. Even Daniel Boone, who wore a raccoon cap, yeah. was not Raccoon Boone. Yeah. And it wasn't... Though Raccoon Boone actually now sounds like a better name now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> and that's right. And his name wasn't Bill Buffalo. It was just Buffalo Bill. It was a nickname. It wasn't his actual last Absolutely. name. Absolutely. So, so, Paul, weird. we disapprove. We disapprove. <laughs> so, um, uh, what was I going to say about this? Oh, yeah. The, so, it was... It was that when they were recording it. You, if you listen, there's actually on on Anthology Three, there's a an a earlier take of it where where Paul obviously has no idea what he's where he's, what he's talking about, <laughs> and it's changes location. He's a young guy from Minnesota, and uh, and it's kind of funny because he makes a he says uh, the doc the the doctor was schminking of gin. Okay. So he starts making fun of that as he goes through the song, and it kind of breaks down from there on. But I like the idea of that because that sounds like the guy singing the song is actually drunker than the doctor. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a curious thing. And so just very spare backing. It's just got Ringo, Paul, and uh, uh, John on bass guitar. Actually, a bass guitar, a six string bass guitar called the Fender Six. Okay. Is what they played. So it's like a six string bass guitar. It kind of looked like a, a Fender Jaguar guitar. They said it had a longer neck. But it had six strings. It had a tremolo arm on it, and it was basically an octave lower, tuned an octave lower 
than uh, a regular guitar. So it's kind of like a baritone guitar rather than a bass guitar. Mm-hmm. But that's what they used for the bass guitar. They also used it on um, on back in the USSR. It's just a very handy guitar, especially if you weren't like totally familiar with playing the bass. You could kind of feel like you're still playing the guitar while you're playing the bass. So this is this is part of the insane amount of variety that's on this album. Yeah, this is not like anything you've heard so far on the album, and you won't hear again. Yeah, you know, it's just it's its own thing, and uh, there you are. And if you enjoyed it, great. And if you didn't, don't worry about it. We're doing something different in a couple of seconds. Yeah, so but, enjoy. But I love this song. I Do you love this song? Oh yeah. I I don't have strong feelings either way, but it's yeah. uh, I liked it more I again just, when I thought it was a raccoon. <laughs> I just like the detail of it. I love the. The you know checked in the room and Gideon's Bible and yeah. I like that Gideon checked out at the end of the song and <laughs> I like the Doctor Stinks of Gin and I just it just feels it it's has a, a story feeling, it's a good yeah, telling a story song. it has yeah. a real fu- fun feeling of a story and 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 also I, I just like Paul's voice too is fantastic in the song so it really I no, I think it's do you know it's one why of my I favorite think songs. yeah you know why I think like it doesn't uh, connect with me as much as with the problem with a story song is there's only so so long so many times you want to hear a story I think it's my problem with like a song like um, Alice's Restaurant it's like when I hear that, that song I'm but, like but I mean to I, be fair that song's 15 minutes long oh so. I understand <laughs> but like any song that's uh, okay. Oh, this is a bad one to bring up. Copacabana. You know, okay. it's just like any song that's like telling you uh, this person started here and mm-hmm. then this happened. This person got shot. Now we don't know what happened yeah. at the end. I like or the gambler. I'm like, I like th- I like them. They're fine. But I don't want to hear them over and over again because yeah. it's someone telling me the same story over and over again. Well, I'll disagree with you on the point that co- both Copacabana and The Gambler aren't very good songs. So, of course, you don't <laughs> want to hear them a lot. Once you've heard them a couple of times, you're sick of them. Sir, well, Rocky, sir, I will not hear anything bad about Copacabana and The Gambler. Uh, Rocky Raccoon, <laughs> Rocky Raccoon, it has a surreal element that that makes it surprising. So it doesn't yes. feel it's not it doesn't feel like a normal story. It has a, a, a magical element, or but a, you can't be surprised a, by it like the second, third, no, fourth time you've heard it. But it's so nice, and the singing's so great that yeah. I, I could sing along with it any old day of the week. Very nice to me. It's like hearing a joke over and over again. It's like I like it. I like it. I like it a little less. I'm fine with it. It's good. All so, right, fair so, enough. So uh, it was George Martin added the honky tonk piano to it, and John on harmonica, and then um, it's, yeah, like I was saying, it did ad lib the things. What, what I thought afterwards was uh, someone asked. Lennon, you know, who wrote it, and of course he said, Paul. He goes, couldn't you guess? Would I have gone to all that trouble about Gideon's Bible and all that stuff? <laughs> I thought was pretty good. All right, well, let's move on to uh, Ringo's sole contribution as songwriter to this album. And that's surprising, Don't since there's so by. many songs. Mm-hmm. You would think like he'd have more than uh, more than this. But then again, you've just told me he wasn't around for uh, the start of this. No, he was around. He was around at the start. He was around for two weeks of the middle of it. Ah, uh, okay. Remember, that's probably that's the historian that's versus the uh, album. Exactly. I understood <laughs> exactly time trouble. Yes, uh, this has one of my favorite lines of uh, in the whole album. Yeah, which is, uh, "I'm sorry that I doubted you. I was so unfair. You were in a car crash and you lost your hair," which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, but it became part of the Paul is dead mythology that it's talk- he's talking about Paul's car car crash that killed him. Okay, but why? Okay, that's what I don't understand. Like I have yeah. read that as well. Now explain to me how that would okay. You were in a car crash There's no... and you lost your hair. Yeah. What? Like, it, if you're dead, who cares if you lost your hair? Yeah. That's a weird detail to throw yeah, in I know. there. It is weird. There's no reason. Burned your pretty hair. I could start to see that. Okay. You don't actually. Now you're no longer there. What Many I, other what ways I like, though, is I brought up this insane thing that this insane myth about Paul is dead and you go well explain how that doesn't make why that doesn't make sense to me well I know because it's crazy that's no, why it doesn't make sense to but, you but obviously in the past there have been other people who have gone ah clearly this and I'm, I'm asking yeah. you as the historian yeah. perhaps one of those people has explained mm-hmm. why the thing at the hair at the end would make a lick of sense in no, that description no that they they don't <laughs> 
Okay. They don't. All right. Well, listen. Uh, I do know we have listeners out there who listen to these songs. You lost your hair when they first. When they first. But you're dead, so who cares? Doesn't matter. Uh, that's a weird detail to put. Like, by the way, we. What happened? Well, did, no, you, but- did you save him, Doctor? No. And. <laughs> We also lost his hair. Oh, no, the tragedy, Doctor. <laughs> Why didn't you start with that? That's, that's right. <laughs> I got some bad news and some worse news. First of all, the hair, it's a mess. Two, he died in the car accident. <laughs> he lost his hair. Notice it's a mess. We've lost the hair. Oh, are you saying that Paul was wearing a wig at the time? I, no, I he lost his hair. I think it just got burned off. Oh, well, okay. Again, it, it makes lost. no sense. But like I'm saying, uh, there are there are listeners out there who have written to us and have said they listened to these albums as they came out. Yeah. Now, if you were around when the Paul is Dead rumors were, mm-hmm. did that line of dialogue make any sense to you at the time? And also, did you believe it? Did you believe Paul was dead at the time? Are you talking about me? No, I'm talking... Did you? Oh, oh, I was addressing about, our listeners. Oh, you're addressing the listeners. I'm sorry. The listeners who I have faded, written... I faded out. Some of them... <laughs> I faded out there for Wait, a second. Wait, is Dave dead? <laughs> Dave, Dave and did he dead. lose his beard? His beautiful beard? I was in a car crash and I lost my beard. <laughs> and also the hair on my face. Okay. Um, I knew you were going to tag it with that, but that's fair. It happened. <laughs> we all were here. You could fix it in editing, but you won't. It's fine. I won't. What's all the right. point? I like that joke. All right. And the song passed me by, though, itself. Uh, what do you think of it? You pass it by. It, it passes by. <laughs> Basically, the it's, song tells you what to do what's in we- the album. It's so weirdly ram. It's so weirdly ramshackle. It's so strange. So what? So what? Uh, it sounds like Ringo's playing a cookie sheet for one thing. Mm-hmm. The drumming on it. It's it has no. It doesn't seem to have a rhythm, a particular rhythm. And that's it. a weird thing for the drummer's song. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Like, why? Why is it kind of weird and and I don't know. It just feels like it feels like they did. They just were like. What kind of weird things we can do this song to make it interesting for ourselves while we're producing mm-hmm. this song for poor old Ringo? And this I don't know, it just feels kind of weird. Like, um, the, the, the fiddle player was a guy named Jack Fallon. He was brought in as a session musician. And now, normally when you play like a country style fiddle, you play it as a, a double stop style, meaning you play two strings at the same time. Mm-hmm. He was asked to play one string at a time. So even there, they like kind of twisted what they were doing. They're like, well, let's, it's kind of a country song. Let's have a country fiddle, but let's say the country fiddle and let's change it a little bit to this. This seems kind of weird, right? Like, why would you do that? What's interesting about this, uh, the, the, uh, fiddle player though, Jack Fallon, is that the Beatles knew him not as a fiddle player, but when he came into the session, they're like, we know you because he had booked them in, uh, 1962. He was the first person to book them to play in the south of England. Oh really? Yeah. So he they booked him for a so so uh, yeah. good good vibes around so there. Like, like first nice. professionally organized gig they played down there in England on thirty first of March nineteen sixty two. They played this gig that was booked by this guy who came in like sixty two. So six years later, here he is going, "Hey fellas, hey fellas, here I am to play some fiddle for you." <laughs> nice one. That's great. And then now, can I ask you a quick question? Oh here? sure, yeah. Who um who who did the singing on piggies? That's George. George. Yeah. All right. Here's what I'm going to say. I think uh, you might have given Ringo that one. That could have been a good uh, Ringo-y uh, kind sure. of kids. At like that point, you are on your own. Well, I got you. I'm just saying. You're like, on your own, I'm buddy. trying to throw Ringo a bone here, and I'm like, what other song could he have done on this uh, album? And it's like, that one? He could have done a Rocky Raccoon, now that I'm thinking sure. about it. Sure. The... I don't like. Do you, you listen to the? You listen to this version. When you listen to it, was there kind of a, a long run out of the fiddle near the end where it kind of? I can't quite remember. Off? I'm oh, sorry. Okay. And the mono version, it's. I'm uh, listening to the scared. terrible stereo version, you know, <laughs> as you know, because that's all I can well, download from uh, the internet. The mono version of White Album is actually a, an afterthought compared to the stereo version. Oh, is that right? White Album was like the first album where this people were starting to recognize stereo as oh, the, okay. the coming technology, and so 
so that there was more work done on the stereo than normal. Um, but yeah, in the mono version, um, the there's as the song ends, uh, Felon was just kind of playing and just kind of you know just kind of did like a little bit of busking near the end, just kind of goofing around a little silliness. And the Beatles liked it and left it in, but he was really embarrassed about it because it wasn't really that good. He was just fooling around. So but I was curious if it lasted into the into the uh, stereo version. And the other thing is George Martin wrote an introduction. It's kind of like interesting little orchestral m- movement to open the song. And then it would kind of go into this kind of crazy round cycle song. So it's, but uh, the Beatles didn't like it, so they didn't use it. And it got uh, got um, used in Yellow Submarine as a little bit of incidental music in Yellow Submarine. But yeah. All right, let's move on from this song. Let's pass it by. Okay. To uh, another song that uh, we could pass by, I suppose. Why don't we do it in the road? <laughs> well, this is the thing. When you're talking about the person who was in the uh, car accident and lost their hair, yeah. I could see why they swerved. <laughs> there are some people doing it in the road. <laughs> doing the road. Though I, though I read that this was actually based on uh, them seeing a couple of monkeys going at it. Yeah, Paul saw some monkeys. He saw, uh, uh, I believe it was uh, Michael Nesmith and uh, <laughs> Peter Tork, and they were having sex in the road. You say it, we picture it. <laughs> so remember that. Remember that in life. Um, yeah, he saw two monkeys, and he was two just... Two good-looking men, nothing wrong with that. And he thought to himself... <laughs> Is that right? Those are the good-looking monkeys that you picked? Um, what are you... Uh, no, but, you know... Come on, Davy Jones. You're has, Davy he, Jones he recently passed people? away. I'm going to give him a little oh, respect. Okay. okay, I get you. And I was on a game show once with Mike Nesmith, and he lost me some money. So not Mike Nesmith, uh, Mickey, uh, Mickey Delens. Mickey okay. So uh, there you go. I was calling Mickey Delens all the time when I was talking to him. Well, I feel like a jerk. Um, <laughs> but So you're not a fan of this song, is what you're saying? No, it's all right. It's yeah, fun. I think it's, it's a good, throwaway. raunchy, fun song. Yeah, it's just, just a couple of come, uh, guys goofing around. We're gonna, yeah. You know, it's a little sexy song. If they were playing this, you know, live, uh, mm-hmm. girls be screaming, good times had, it's, it's fine. basically Paul by himself. Oh, is it? Okay. Uh, it's just Ringo and drums. That's all. And uh, actually, I should have said that about Martha as well. Martha is all Paul. Okay. No Beatle on it, just him by himself. Um, which is, I mean, sometimes... I guess that's where they're heading. There's a, if you read the Playboy interview of John Lennon, he he talks about this song and he he says one is that he was hurt that he wasn't asked to do it because it's a kind would have been a song that he would love to do. I mean, yeah. wh- why was John Lennon spending three days doing Obla Di Obla Da? This is way more up his alley. Well, way this is way more up his alley. And then this song, you know, uh, well, um, he and and George were doing something else. Uh, Paul sneaks into the studio and and and, and does this. You know, it doesn't seem. Entirely fair, Paul. Sneaky Pete. Yeah, and yeah, it's a good, it, it's a good raunchy song. And you know what? I mean, rock and roll—that's uh, a slang term for sex. So you should have your sexy song on there, and and that's what this is. It's a good raunchy song. There you yeah. go. Um, you got to turn it down when your parents walk into the room, you know, and uh, you know, put oobla dee oobla da back on. <laughs> that's right. Like, uh, yeah, I can see them getting a little trouble for this. Yes, I, I can too. So let's. Let's move on. I think this the next song. I think is a wonderful song. Now we're going to bring it to, to the end of the uh, of the album. Not quite. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. We're not there yet. We're done. I will. Oh, I will. I'm sorry. I jumped ahead to uh, yeah. Julia. This is my mistake, Dave. This is why you're here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, I will. Oh, okay. Speaking of melting, this is to me. They used to be on like the old albums, like uh, Paul would sing a song, and it sounded like it just was the melting song that yeah. the girls would listen to. Yeah. And just ah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, sit on the bed and like, that's me and him, and <laughs> ah. It's so weird that it comes after, right after, why don't we do it in the road? Yeah. It's yeah. just so, it's such an odd placement for, for that, but I but I do like the song a lot. Oh, me too. And what's interesting about it is that it was so hard to do, because it was just, it was just him on acoustic guitar, so it was a real, it was just really... Uh, what would the word be? It was an unforgiving way to record it, and it took him sixty-seven takes to finally get the perfect take with no mistakes in it or anything. 
And uh, it, he's doing it with John. John and, and uh, Ringo help out. Ringo plays maraca and uh, cymbals, and John is on, on a wooden block. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I I guess you could call it schmaltzy. Oh, yeah, you if could. it wasn't so clever. Well, do you know what I mean? If it wasn't such a well-arranged, smart song, you could call it schmaltzy. But okay, I don't think it's, it falls it, into I think that. It's, I think it's smart. Now, it's tough with schmaltzy. Because, yeah, I mean, if you take schmaltzy as dumb, I'll give you that. But, it, like, it is, uh, it was relentless. It is relentless in that, you know... You know, I've always loved you. I always yeah. will. You want me to wait? I'll wait forever. Don't mm. worry. I'm always here, regardless, yeah. unconditionally. This all those will. internal rhymes, though. It is such a clever Oh, it's song. very, very clever. Yeah. But it's the one that, like, you know, just hitting all the bases on sure. the girl who's sitting there. Well, I think that's just Sighing and thinking of it's them. kind of it's kind of related musically related to All Follow the Sun. It's very similar yes. in, in, yeah. in sound and, and it's the chord sequences. While he was recording, I mean, he did 65 takes. And, of course, it's Paul McCartney. Someone gave him a guitar. And so he would you know, busk songs while he was playing. And he played things like uh, Step Inside Love, uh, which he'd just written for Scylla Black. And and then he just improvised songs as well. And he improvised one called uh, Lost... Par- it was given... Two were given titles. One was called Lost Paranoias. And the other one was called take- Can You Take Me Back? Which Can You Take Me Back was then later snipped off this and was put between Cry Baby Cry and Revolution 9. Oh, okay. So it's kind of a sort of sinister introduction to uh, to Revolution 9. It works, All right. It works really well. Because it's unexpected and it's unexplained. You don't know what it is and where where is he? Who's taking him back and why is he being taken back for? And, and this is a, interesting. This is an unexpected album all the way through. You're never yeah. you're never on yeah. uh, you're never on sure footing. No, with any right. of this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So okay, well let's move to the very last song then. Julia. Once again, an unfollowable song. I think. I think that you don't want to put anything after this song. Mm-hmm. It's so. It's John's only solo performance on on a Beatles album. Oh, is that right? Yeah. He never, just him and acoustic guitar performing the song. And it's so soul-bearing. It's so, it's so, just John, oh, just letting it all hang okay, out. Okay, where, really... let me ask you then this about that. Mm-hmm. Was, uh, now the songs we were saying were Paul sneaking in and doing his own yeah. work. Now, had had John recorded this already by the time? No, this was one of the, this was the last song recorded for for the White Album. Oh, okay, because I was, yeah. I was, I was wondering about that, like if this was a, this was a thing like, well, Paul's doing his solo, I gotta. Yeah, no, Paul was there when it was recorded. He okay. wasn't sneaking away. Like, Paul was in the control room. He's, he's audible on the tape, talking and talk back to, to John, explaining things. Or giving giving some advice. Or yeah, my question on that was going to be like, since John had this song, which is a solo, which is such a mm-hmm. devastating, amazing song. Yeah, I could see how the competitive Paul would then go, "Well, I got to get a solo of my own in, regardless." Yeah. And yeah, slip, no, no, slippity doo But he didn't. Obviously, that was done this was before. the very last song, and it was it was on the Kinfons demo. Unlike I will, which Paul says was written in in uh, Rishikesh. It's it's not on the Kinfons demo, but Julia is. So John was working on it. It's not complete on in that demo version, but he was working on it at the time. And it's done in that similar Travis Picking style that mm-hmm. Donovan taught to them. And yeah, it's just a, an amazing song. I mean, it's evokes it evokes his mother, his memories of his mother. His mother's name was Julia. Okay. So, you know, that he lo- the, who he described as losing twice, once as a 5-year-old boy and once as a teenager when she died, when she was killed in a car accident. And and then it also kind of it's almost a song where his mother his the the mother character this sort of you know kind of quasi I don't say I don't want to say it's an Oedipal thing but I think he was very much had he was very much affected by his mother by yeah. her treatment of him which wasn't nice that she gave him away when he was when he was young mm-hmm. and lived nearby but did not pay attention to him or visit him or anything until he was a teenager um, 
and then for him to lose her again after that, after he established a relationship with her, then to lose her again, pretty heartbreaking. And so it, that was a major part of his personality, you know, and I think this song is almost like her giving him up to Yoko, you know, an ocean child. Yoko's oh, okay. name literally means child of the sea. Okay. And so he's, you know, he's, 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 projecting a relationship with Yoko. I mean, he hasn't started one yet. He's still in, in Rishikesh, but he's projecting that relationship with her. And it's almost like an escape from, from his, uh, not an escape from his mom, but almost like a, I mean, he never did tr- truly. I mean, there's the song Mother and My Mommy is Dead, which are on uh, the Plastic Ono band. But I mean, there's still. I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking here now and seeing there are lines in here about silent clouds. So maybe that Yoko thing about the cloud didn't make it in. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <laughs> And then he also adapted lines from this uh, poem by Khalil Gibran, who wrote The Prophet, which at that time was like, I don't know why, like if you have relatives who grew up in the 60s and they still have their books from that time, if you look on their bookshelf, they'll have The Prophet. Yeah. I don't know why, but it was very popular at the time. And he did a poem called Sand and Foam. And it might have it might have been sent to him by Yoko. Like she might have been the one who sent him the poem. But he took some lines from it. There's one of uh, the line in the Sand and Foam reads, half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it so that the other half may reach you. And of course, in the song, it's half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you. Now, my question on that, um, I actually have a real question about that sure, line. Sure, sure. Uh, now, when yeah. I first when I first heard it, I heard it because there's a little bit of a pause after meaning. Half of what I say is meaningless. Yeah. Like I thought like, oh, half of what I say now means means less. But then there's also half of what I say is meaningless. Yeah. Because I've got to like say say more than I than I should say. But which what is it really like in the actual in the because li- it's it's miss it's uh in various lyrics I yeah. found here people spell it differently and say it differently. If you is look it, on the lyric sheet on in the white album it has it as a one word meaningless. Meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. It works both ways it works, for me. It does like, work both yeah. ways, sure. Sure. I mean maybe that's one problem with having lyrics printed is that you take away that <laughs> that d- different readings of, of things, right? That, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah. And then the other line is, uh, when life does not find a singer to sing her heart, she produ- produces a philosopher to speak her mind, which he changed to, when I cannot sing my heart, I can only speak my mind. So, yeah, it's. I think those are things he's saying to Yoko. I think I think if she sent him that poem, then he's he is sending it back in his lyrics, lines from the poem that had meaning to him, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's. I, I don't want to analyze anybody by their by their you know thing, but that's a bit of what we do here. You know, um, you know, a lot of the songs that he's saying, like in this and the future, are about jealousy. Yeah. And I think if the one woman that you've loved abandons you, yeah. that's your first love. Sure. Then you've got that feeling that she's going to go, mm-hmm. and the person that you're with is going to go, and that can easily turn into jealousy and oh, yeah. like being needy, and I'm going to. I'm going to make sure. you stay regardless. And mistreating yeah. women. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. And there's no, there's, it's no excuse, but it is, it, it can is be it the, the source. And this song, like I say, he did it by himself, or performed it by himself, and recorded it in one hour, and it was finished. That was it. And the album was done. Only it's not. Because next time, we've we got have a whole other, other album. album. <laughs> <laughs> we do. Oh my gosh! And another single. Absolutely. Yes. So uh, we hope you will join us for that. As always, uh, we're at sneakydragon.com. That's where our message boards are. We love you uh, to post whatever you want and talk about things. Dave will answer questions. I will probably not because I don't know the answers to those questions that you post for the most part. Uh, we're we appreciate it if you go on iTunes and give us uh, a rating. That helps us yep. a lot and uh, give us a it couple of comments. It boosts our ego. 
Uh, Until it, it is. It, sometimes it does, and yeah. sometimes it takes it down a notch. It depends I, what you put, folks, honestly, and that's fine. To be honest, but m- follow your heart. My, my little thermostat that I draw little red lines on, I, it's been going up for me. I don't as of it? Oh, yeah, that's good. Only, only up. That's right. And as we've known with the, with the Beatles thing you were saying earlier, yeah. when things are going up, they yeah. can only keep only going. going. There's right. only one direction, it's baby. Only one direction. Straight to the stars. That's right. And when you get to a star, you burn up. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> But yeah, we uh, we always like hearing from you. Uh, if we've made some mistakes, and I'm sure we have, uh, please yep. offer corrections. We're happy uh, to hear those. And uh, we will be back with the second half of The Beatles, also known as The White Album, if you're the kind of person who likes to call it that, in uh, two weeks' time. Yes. Thanks so much for listening. I've been Ian Boothby. I've been David Dedrick. If you want to hear more of us, we're also do the Sneaky Dragon podcast. That's it for us. Uh, have a good day. Bye. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,